Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Two weeks ago, we brought you part one of our series on crop circles. Around for decades, they are now largely overlooked by all but the most stalwart curiosity seekers. There's reason to believe there are forces at play that have orchestrated that disinterest. And the question is, why? However, before we can get to that, we need to look further at the differences between what researchers call genuine crop circles and what they call hoaxed or artificial. We've already established that historical accounts are dating back to the year 815 that could be attributed to them, as well as early satellite data showing them in the late 1940s and 50s, well before anyone was talking about them. The farther we look into this, the more bottomless the pool's deep end seems to get. Is there something grander at play here? Tonight, we'll share some of the more spectacular details associated with some specific formations that you don't generally find when you start researching this phenomenon online. There are anomalous events related to numerous formations that defy a rational explanation. On top of that, they often seem to defy the laws of physics, which rule out psychosomatic reactions. Even the greatest hoaxer in the world can't change how gravity works or cause flies to be melted into the stalks of crops within formations. They also can't leave something behind that causes the failure of visitors' electronic equipment for days and weeks. More than anecdotal, these problems have even plagued equipment brought in by the BBC. We'll take a look at hoaxing versus authentic formations tonight. Then we've cleared the path forward to examine the much higher concepts behind the origins of crop circles. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forest Purchase. It is perfectly natural to ask if crop circles are hoaxes, but very difficult to explain why they cannot be hoaxed satisfactorily. Pat Delgado, NASA engineer and crop circle researcher. Join us tonight for part two of our series on crop circles. We're back. Hold the freaking phone, man. What? Wait, 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 what's going on? Well, we're going to three parts with this series, folks, and I, I want to give a shout out to listener Raphael for writing in about that. We were going to do it anyway, man, but thanks for the email. <laughs> I like a little approbation, so that's good. Well, I mean, this story is bigger than we anticipated, or I guess as I led you to believe anyway. Yeah, that it is. So uh, now it's three parts on crop circles because this wasn't just a couple of senior citizens with planks, folks. Wait, well, some of it mm, was, sure. but... Yeah. 
there's a whole lot more going on here. And the more we dig into it, the more it seems like there's an effort to muddy the waters, mm. dilute the researchers' efforts, and just generally create confusion and disinterest. We can't let that happen, can we? Well, outside of what how we do it for ourselves, no. I, you know, should we say we have a responsibility to reframe the picture here? Uh, yes, in fact, we do, because that's what we do. That's what we signed up for uh, instead of doing the movie review podcast, which is what we should okay. have done. A couple of quick notes before we dive back in tonight. Firstly, and I can't remember if we said this yet on the air, but the Midnight Library has returned mm. with season four. And it just continues to get better and better, folks. So if you haven't checked that Astonishing Legends production out yet, now is the time. Find and subscribe to the Midnight Library wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also hear me on the podcast Beyond the Playlist with our friend Hammond Chamberlain to talk about, quote, the nuances of my production and style. <laughs> well, come on, man. I, I had a blast, and especially since I didn't have to fight you for the mic while I was talking about podcasting. You know how that goes, oh, okay? Yes, All I right. do know how that goes. Well, I would have just left the room. Got to get a, make a sandwich or something. Well, that's, I, no, that's what I do act. when you start texting me. It's, it's going to be 25 <laughs> texts later, so just uh, go do something else. Yeah. Yeah, folks, so look for Beyond the Playlist wherever you get your podcasts. And one last note that we're actually super excited to talk about. We were recently invited to participate in the beta of a new app called Fireside. This is different from our main show here in that it's live interactive audio, and we're just getting our feet wet with it here. But so far, it's been a lot of fun, and we wanted to let people know how you could find us there if you want to check out some of the more off-the-cuff conversations that uh, include, like, Q&A sessions with some listeners that we've been allowed to invite into the app before it officially launches. Now, although the app is smartphone and tablet-centric and also iOS-only at the moment, anyone can listen online at our respective Fireside profile pages, which are firesidechat.com slash Scott Philbrook, no spaces or uh, dots, or fireside.com slash Forest Burgess. You can listen to any conversation that we've had there that we decide to publish and have released to the webpage. Yes, but there's more. Now, they're letting more folks into the app. So if you visit either of our profile pages, sooner than later, you can request access to Fireside right on those pages. And you're going to want to do that as soon as possible, because if you do, and they let you into the beta, then you can actually join us on what they call, they call it on stage, right? Yes, but it's audio only. Yes. You don't have to (laughs) appear in person. No, you don't have to walk up the aisle to the mic. Uh, we're all just there. It's very casual, but it's it's a very cool feature. You know, you can be called on stage at our next conversation and be a part of it yourself and asking questions and speaking with us directly. Isn't it delightful to think about? Yeah, it's pretty cool. And in speaking of that, we're already scheduled for our next live fireside chat with Richard Haddam on Monday, April 26th at 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern. I'm only doing U.S. times right now, so everybody mm-hmm. else can mm-hmm. go plug it into timebuddy.com. That's a good one for that. So April 26th at 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern. This is going to be a general conversation with Rich about the paranormal and how it influences Ooh. his creative process, because we sort of got into that in our last conversation. We wanted to yeah. take it a little bit further. There's also going to be a chance to ask him or us questions yourself. So if you want to just listen, again, go to either firesidechat.com slash Scott Philbrook or firesidechat.com slash Forrest Burgess. But if you want to be a part of the interactive audience, click request fireside access there from one of those profile pages and do it before we go on with Rich because it takes them a bit to get back to you about joining up for the beta. We'll have links to both of our profiles in the show notes. 
Okay, so where are we starting tonight? How about with Welcome Back to Cheesefoot Head? That, sir, is incorrect. Uh, Welcome to Chessfoot Head? Mm, maybe. Welcome to Ches Food Heed? <laughs> what the? Sorry, it sounds like a restaurant like Shea Foot. We're really getting <laughs> off topic here. But, you know, it really depends on who you're talking to. So we got a few emails about Ches Foot, Ches Foot, or Ches Foot Head and its pronunciation. And guess what? Even the locals don't agree. It's a little bit like that Prescott versus Prescott, Arizona debate all over again. Oh, really? So what's the right way? Well, according to loyal listener Jai, hey guys, love your show. I've only recently been put on to you guys by my partner Jenny, and I'm currently listening through your back catalog. As I originally come from Winchester, I, I now live in Scotland, my partner told me about this episode and asked me if I knew of it. I told her I did, and I explained pretty much what you've explained, saying that I saw crop circles myself in Cheesefoot and watching the news reports of Doug Bauer and Dave Chorley, which is the reason why I'm messaging you about how to pronounce Cheesefoot. It's pronounced Chesfoot. A small matter, but a little irksome for a local lad. Keep doing what you're doing, as you're doing a fantastic job. Best wishes, Jai. Okay, so Chesfoot it is then. But wait, there's more. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, this one comes from listener Chris Harfield, whom we exchanged a few emails with since he graciously offered his assistance with the series as he lives right up the road from, wait for it, Chesfoot Head. Okay, Chesfoot. So now it's Chess, <laughs> not Ches. Okay, well, this is what Chris has to say about it. I feel it would be remiss of me not to point out that Cheesefoot Head is actually pronounced Chessfoot Head by true locals. I was mocked by a local farmer the first time I said that incorrectly, and even most locals don't seem to know the correct pronunciation. But I know you guys are sticklers for accuracy, so I thought you would want to know. <sighs> okay, so this is really all about what to do with the S's in Chessfoot. Cheesefoot, Chesfoot, Chesfoot. <laughs> but both of these guys definitely agree the E's do not have a long E sound, right. even though everywhere else in the English speaking world, two E's back to back make a long E sound like weed, peed, creed, greed. <laughs> I think you just made a note of that because you wanted to say peed on the air. I did want to say I know, but, but, but Scott, you've heard of a Chesbro Road up here in the valley, and the oh, well yeah. north valley here, and it's, it could be Cheeseboro. There's Chesbro. Yeah. Yeah, there's just, uh, yeah. I think it's an old English name, and there's so many variations of it, but foot is F-U-T, like foot, and not foot, right? Right. Okay. Cheese food. <laughs> Ches food. And we're now going to be doing a new language podcast, right? Yeah, yeah apparently. Wait, look. <laughs> hey, we have a soundbite from Colin Andrews tonight where he says, chess foot. But you know what? I don't care how you say it. It's still a hilarious grouping of words. We love to get this stuff right, so thanks guys for writing in. It occurs to me that you may have both meant the same thing, but maybe one of you made an error with the phonetic spelling of it. And so tonight, I suppose we'll go with Chris, seeing as we know he lives right up the road, and a nod to his friend Fiona for her assistance as well. To be continued. Well, hold on a second now. In our defense, I just want to say even the British woman narrator of one of the documentaries we're going to be talking about tonight pronounces it cheese foot head as well. So that's what we had to go by. Oh yeah, Sarah, roll that clip, just so people can believe us. Ken Brown regarded the circles as a fascinating mystery when he first became involved in 1991. Yet from his investigations of formations in the cheese foot head area, he soon noticed the presence of suspicious underlaying pathways, which convinced him of an earthbound cause. 
All right, so last week we dropped a little bit of a bombshell about Doug and Dave, the hoaxers of renown that everybody points to as causing the whole thing, and the Ministry of Defense. That was uh, quite a juicy little bombshell there, and we'll be getting to that tonight in a bit. But we wanted to say something first, and the truth is, this is one topic where no amount of our audio description, no matter how long we can go on and on about this phenomenon, will do this thing justice, because you really need to see these crop circle formations for yourself. Because this is one of the interesting things about the topic. Whether you believe these are real or just the work of prankster landscape artists, or maybe it's coming from an otherworldly intelligence, they're quite amazing to look at. Some of the more complicated ones are, are mesmerizing. And I'll point this out as part of the phenomenon that people point to as being authentic. When you look at even a, a whole section that has been laid down flat, the authentic ones, the seriologists will point to as a characteristic of being authentic is that when you look at it from the air, there's a sheen to it, much like if you were to look close up at a bit of embroidery, like yeah, the stitching, totally. in this case, the reeds are laid down at... There's a pattern to the sheen of it, which is just yes. impressive. And that's why you... Like a moray effect. Exactly. And and again, yeah, maybe people can do that, but it would take so much more effort and maybe days to accomplish that in that fashion. So this is really a topic where you, the listener, could really start to wrap your head around this if you actually watch a crop circle documentary or flip through some photos online on one of the many terrific websites there are out there put together by seriologists, because you really need to see a crop circle to believe or believe to see. So if you're interested at all in the crop circle phenomenon, we highly encourage you to watch one of the documentaries, Crop Circles, Quest for Truth, and or One on Earth, Inside the Crop Circle's Mystery. Those are, I think, two of the best documentaries we came across. Yeah, and look for these on uh, Amazon Prime. For both of those are on Amazon Prime. You got to be careful when you get on a YouTube because it's just 50 billion <laughs> poorly made YouTube videos. With yeah. Made up facts and, you know, repurposed pictures. So you got to look look for the real deal on this because right. it's too big a subject to find effectively on YouTube in a lot of ways unless you're really right. good at sussing out the... The actual documentaries versus the hoax documentary. <laughs> well, I, and yeah. I mean, they're hoaxing, pretending to be documentaries when they're not. Exactly. So. I mean, we're going to cover a documentary tonight that takes a more debunky angle, I say, or tone with it. The first two we mentioned there, Crop Circle's Quest for Truth and What on Earth Inside the Crop Circle's Mystery. Yes, they are more from the open-minded, accepting viewpoint. The other one we're going to talk about, Crop Circle Communique 2, colon, Revelations is an older documentary from uh, 1994, I believe, that you can't even get on DVD. It's only available on VHS or if you recorded it off your TV at the time, which is, I think, how we got our video of it. That one takes a very skeptical view of it, but it's great because it shows and interviews a lot of the hoaxers, which is a big feature of what we're going to talk about tonight. So yes, if you can't get there yourself, these are some pretty great alternatives that will give you a good overview of the scope, magnitude, and proliferation of these things. Yeah, so uh, tonight we're going to dive deep here in part two into both sides of the coin that is the crop circle phenomenon. And when we get done with that in part three, we'll explain how what's going on here is actually a lot more multidimensional than hoax versus non-hoax or human versus non-human. But that's for part three, which will also contain our conclusions. Now, suffice it to say, none of this is going where you think it is. Everyone thinks crop circles are mystery solved, but they aren't. They're partially solved, but it's more complicated. Than oh, that. yeah. 
So going back to the rather simplistic two-sided coin analogy, we have side one, crop circles are real. There's no way they can be hoaxes. Side two, crop circles are all hoaxes. There's no way they can all be real. (laughs) So where do we begin? Let's start with crop circles are real. We're going to start here because chronologically, when you look at crop circles as a phenomenon, the idea that they were real from a research and a current standpoint precedes the idea of hoaxes. Now, in part one, we talked about historical occurrences that may have been crop circles, uh, Lyon in the year 815, Mm -hmm. Lorraine in 1590, Robert Plott's fairy circles in 1686, the first known picture of one in the published Bow Hill photo of 1932, which was first published, uh, we think, in 1937. Or Greg Jeffrey's research using historical satellite images available in Google Earth, revealing unknown circles from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, which are in more recent times, but still way before crop circles entered the global zeitgeist. Yes, exactly. And if you talk to the seriologists, those are the people that think there is something other than hoaxing going on with crop circles and want to study them, people who are researchers of this phenomenon... They have talked to these farmers, and and think about this, that would be the late 80s, early 90s, and, you know, throughout the early 2000s at least, and most every one of them have said, yeah, my parents and the generations before them all talked about having crop circles in their fields. They just didn't make a big deal of it. Yeah, that's a great point. They, it's just a phenomenon that they associate with their land, and they get to a point where they're actually not even paying attention to them anymore, or they did until they became a bigger deal in the, yeah. in the uh, culture at large. I want to talk a little bit about this Bow Hill one because that's the one that came from the website we were talking about, Old Crop Circles. Uh, we'll have a link to that that talks about ones that predate the onset of uh, the gathering of information that Colin Andrews and Pat Delgado and Busty Taylor did for their very first book on crop circles, Circular Evidence, which we mentioned in part one. But with this Bow Hill story, this is pretty fascinating. This actually comes from oldcropcircles.weebly.com. And again, we'll have a link to it. I want to read about this particular crop circle. And this is related to a very old black and white picture. One of the first ones thought to exist uh, with modern photographic methods that shows a crop circle. Reading from the webpage, it says, This case was uncovered by Andy Thomas, who discovered it in an old copy of Sussex Notes and Queries, published by the Sussex Archaeological Society. We believe the publication date is 1937, but this is not clear. It is in any respect obviously from an old publication and not a modern volume. This is an impressive case, for it provides eyewitness site description, photograph of site, diagram of formation. The photograph is the earliest crop circle photo currently known. It is shown below. It does not reproduce well, but a clearly defined ring is visible in the foreground at the bottom of the image. The diagram shows four rings in no meaningful formation, one of which is incomplete due to its overlapping the field boundary. The site description is again persuasive. The author of the piece is Elliot Cecil Kerwin, who lived from 1895 to 1967, a Sussex-based archaeologist and writer, and he reports as follows, quote, This ring was found to consist of a circle in which the barley was lodged or beaten down. There is little which needs to be added by us. Taken as a whole, the evidence in this case is comprehensive and on par with some reports in later books, such as Circular Evidence. I want to read the actual description here from Sussex Notes and Queries, again by Cecil Kerwin, uh, thought to be published in 1937. During August 1932, some visitors to Bow Hill near Chichester drew the writer's attention to some curious circles which they could see in a field of ripe barley, 
when looking northwestwards from Bow Hill towards Stoughton Down. The field in question lies on the lower southern slope of the latter between the 200 and 300 foot contour lines, and its southwest corner has the following bearing, and he goes on to list the location. At the time of observation, the field as delimited on the OS map was divided into two parts, of which the northern was occupied by turnips and the southern by barley, while a tin-roofed barn occupied the southeast corner of the latter. In the barley, three dark rings and part of a fourth could be seen from the top of Bow Hill, the southeastern ring being clearer than the others. When viewed on the ground, only the southeastern ring could be located, and this was found to consist of a circle in which the barley was lodged or beaten down while the interior area was very slightly mounded up. The diameter was approximately 40 yards, and as judged from Bow Hill, the other rings appeared to be of a similar size. In the accompanying sketch plan, the positions of the rings and their relative size have been plotted and from observations made at the time from the top of Bow Hill. And this is really cool. We'll have a link to this, but there's a sketch that somebody drew out back in 1930 when this happened. So you ask, why share this one in particular? The, the photo was probably only five years old when it was published. It's incredibly well documented, and it lacks all the influence of modern theories about the paranormal and the hoaxing. Tractors would gradually replace horses within a few years of this, but there were no tram lines to speak of in the fields back then, eliminating easy access for circle hoaxing, and pesticides also were non-existent, so there was not a lot of traffic in the field. The crops were planted, tended, and harvested, but here's the real point for debunkers. Keeping in mind at Astonishing Legends, we draw a line between sometimes anyway debunking and healthy skepticism yeah we we just we just consider more things whereas i i think people who are debunking they draw a hard line and don't consider anything beyond that and and we feel like skepticism is welcome and we're endeavoring to employ it ourselves and it probably appears that we have confirmation bias toward the unexplained but keep in mind that by the time an episode Mm -hmm. of our show has been produced we generally read a lot of books about it done extensive research on the topic at hand so whatever bias you hear in the course of a series is related to what we learned after we started looking into it. For example, before we did the Patterson-Gimlin series on the most famous Bigfoot footage of all time, I was fairly certain that was a hoax. And by the time we started putting the show together, Mm -hmm. my opinion was wavering on that. And the same is the case here. Not because I went into this necessarily believing crop circles were a legitimate phenomenon, but because of what I've learned since we started digging into it. But to return to my original point, the reason that I wanted to talk about Bow Hill is that in the description of that event, you find a flatly objective document of what occurred. There's there's no confirmation bias because there's no precedent known to the author of it for the scenario. Oh, and one other thing. When this circle was made, Doug Bauer was eight years old. Dave Chorley was three. Now, do we still think they wandered out of a pub at those mm. ages and made the circles on Bow Hill? That would actually be an even more <laughs> astonishing legend than the one at hand here. Although you can drink earlier, I believe, in England as young folks. Uh, yeah, but I don't think you can drink at three. Eight, maybe. I don't know about Well, if three. you had a beard. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. We'll see. All right, so before we get into some of the crazier events associated with what we're calling genuine or authentic crop circles, we did want to point to just a few of the weird things that have happened along the way, some of the smaller, quicker, easier to explain ones. Uh, For example, in part one, I think we talked about how there's a relationship in some cases between formations that people are meditating or thinking about, and then they appear. But one of the first examples 
was uh, the story of Maki Masao, who came to Wiltshire in 2009 to debunk crop circles, speaking of debunkers. Hmm. And he came in with an experiment in mind. He and 11 others, uh, also uh, Japanese tourists, I believe, were going to meditate and pray for a circle to appear that met a certain criteria. It was to appear that night close by and to the west. And while it didn't appear that same evening, within a few days, a now infamous origami style or Japanese Mm -hmm. origami style circle did show up immediately west of the location where they meditated. And for Maki Masao, it was evidence enough that something more sophisticated was going on. Now, there's a lot of other examples of people thinking of a pattern only to see it appear, not only in a field, but sometimes additionally in their own yards at home. And in some cases, these patterns are moving through their lives in a way that it's kind of amazing. Colin Andrews tells a story about his niece that we'll talk about in part three, about a pattern that she saw in a dream and then made some art and then gave it to her grandmother and then it wound up in a field later. And and this is something that no one could have seen. So that's really fascinating. And there's uh, generally a connection in terms of time too. The events tend to go close together. So there's some kind of thread happening that's invisible that seems to connect everything. Uh, The other thing I want to talk about was the scale, the increasing scale of production, really. Specifically, one of the most impressive crop circles, I think, that has ever been created happened on August 12th of 2001. This is is weird when you think about it. It's just one month prior to the 9-11 attacks in New York City, which, you know, I, of course, remember where I was. My wife and I were about to move to New York when that happened after living about 10 years in Mm -hmm. Los Angeles. And I think back to that frame of time. And I was already fascinated in this kind of stuff. You and I were friends uh, at yeah, that point, yeah. not as close as we got to be when when I moved back to L.A. But I don't remember talking about this circle, but this circle would have been mind-blowing, but it's eclipsed by 9-11, which came 30 days later. I can't remember even if I saw this circle in the news, the Milk Hill Circle. Mm. But I will say you just now jogged my memory because it is one of my favorite crop circles. And uh, I, I, yes, we need to get more images up. I think we, I think that's the only one. That's the representative image for our episode series here. But uh, we have to find ones that we can use and organize them correctly with captions. So yeah, all those pictures are trademarked and rights reserved. Yeah, so it's, so it's difficult. To... Sorry, folks, if you've been uh, looking at the web page <laughs> and there's just the one photo. But that is, I remember that came out because I. I was impressed at the time and I made copies of it. And I think I even used it as a screensaver for my computer at work. So I do remember it happening and taking note of it because it's 409 circles. It's a multiple, what they call a Julia set. So there's an impossibility factor in how quickly the first Julia set appeared near Stonehenge within 45 minutes. Then there was a multiple Julia set, I believe, and then a simpler one. But this one is monstrous. And it is one that I point to thinking that, yeah, maybe a team of 20, 30 people could do this in a few days. But I see no possible way it could have been done in the short amount of time it was reported, because this one you can't ignore. So it appears you notice it right away. So anyway, uh, but the other thing I was going to mention is that you're talking about 9-11, Crop circles are often tied, it seems, by those reporting them, to coincide with global events. And the one anecdote I remember, because I think in part three, we're going to talk about sacred symbolism of a lot of these images and patterns, and that those are global. We mentioned in part one, Guiang Guiang images of the Kimberley Rock Art area of Australia, and how just iconic those are 
to the indigenous peoples there, but also to other peoples around the world and that we kind of get what they mean. And in this case, this photo appears in the book Signs of Contact on page 122, and it does look like a native symbol for the United States. So this photograph of the crop circle was sent by Colin Andrews to Hopi Indian elders. And I'm reading the caption for the photo here. Hopi Indian elders in the United States seeking their views on what it might mean. And they responded by saying, mother is crying, meaning Mother Earth. And perhaps by coincidence, it formed as the Gulf War began on August 4th, 1990. So there is a connection perhaps that a lot of people see, a lot of researchers, to Earth changes and events connected to human events and actions. And it's all tied together. And possibly it's a message about that. Yeah, and here's what's interesting about those dates, too, because I was just cross-referencing that. You know, on Wikipedia, it says the Iraqi army invaded and occupied Kuwait on August 2nd. Mm -hmm. And then on the Crop Circle Center, which is the big index of multiple crop circles, it has uh, high-contrast images of all of them. It says that that particular one formed on the 3rd, and and then Colin Andrews has it as the 4th. But in a way, it's almost more interesting to me that it could be the very day after the Iraqi army invaded Kuwait, and then the the war kicked off in earnest. It's interesting. I guess we always have a choice, which a lot of people, uh, sages and prophets and seers have said that we have a choice to act or not act, and and our reality doesn't really know until we do it. So maybe it waited for Saddam to pull the trigger on that, and then said, well... Now the earth is crying. Hello everyone, I'm Colin Andrews and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, coming back to Milk Hill, again, the formation that formed 30 days before 9-11, I want to describe a little bit about this and why I have it here on our list of hard-to-believe-as-hoax type of crop circles. It was at a higher altitude location, and on top of that, the field it was in was topographically complex. The night that it appeared, it had been rainy. Yeah, That formation is generally referred to as the galaxy spiral. And as Forrest said, it was an astronomical, somewhere between 780 and 900 feet in diameter. And the the reports vary on that. That's why I can't nail that down. I found two different sources there. Either way, at the smallest, it is still larger than two football fields in diameter. I guess. Right. (laughs) You could could play two football games. And and for uh, folks overseas, I'm talking about American football. Yes. Right. You could play two games side by side within the diameter of this formation and still be inside of that circle. That's how big around it was. And the field that it appeared in was so hilly that it was described that you couldn't even see when the investigators got there, they couldn't even see the uphill portions of the formation from the lower ones or vice versa. So making it uh, highly accurate, uh, mathematically accurate for a hoax Mm -hmm. there would be very, very difficult. And again, as Forrest said, this one comprised 409 individual circles. Yeah. It took researchers half an hour in broad daylight just to find the center of it when they showed up to inspect it. This massive one that appeared in 2001 at Milk Hill, the photo of it in color appears on page 145 of Crop Circle Signs of Contact, and the caption here for it says it appeared in minutes. So it is one of those cases that's totally baffling in that how would you even accomplish that at night in the rain without an army of people that could be done in minutes. And well, you know what? Actually, we'll talk about what it's like to actually make a circle in the middle of the night. 
And it might be a lot easier than you think, except for this case. That's what I'm saying about this whole topic is that a lot of this can be explained. And then some of this, it's just not logical or practical to be explained with mundane terms. As Forrest just said, it was raining that night when it appeared. When the researchers got there, there were no footprints leading into or out of the field. There was no disturbance of the muddy earth that they could find, no mistakes in the formation. And the farmer who owned the field stated it was definitely not there the night before, which rules out a multi-day process. Now thinking about this, if three people had shown up to do this, each one of them would have had to make 136 circles of various sizes under cover of darkness in one rainy night. Unless it happened in the daytime, I'm not sure uh, what Colin is saying here about it happening in a few minutes. Mm -hmm. I don't have that origin story on this one handy. Uh, and believe me, I want to, but we're literally talking about hundreds upon hundreds of circles, and uh, it's a lot to keep straight. Yes. <laughs> so I'm not sure that, but but either way, I, the, there was uh, the circle makers or some of the hoaxers. Uh, I know we came across some material, which we'll talk about later, where up to 13 people showed up. Mm -hmm. If 13 people showed up for this one, they'd still have to, each one of them would have to make 31 circles. And then on top of that, they would have to coordinate them to a level of perfection that you just can't believe when you look at this picture. Um, so I guess my thing is, where is the proof of a circle this complex being created by hoaxers? That's what I want to know. On a high field yeah. with uh, undulating topography and on a rainy night, not leaving footprints, right. regardless of what's going on with the stalks yeah. and the uh, whether they're broken or the nodes are blown out and all that kind of stuff. I just want to see the proof of something this grand. And well, yeah. I, I feel like I haven't... We did find some interesting proof of things, but not something like this. Well, not to spoil anything, but we did find some video from the Circle Makers, that group that is taking responsibility for some of them. And the one that we saw that's on YouTube, it's impressive, I got to say. Not yes. as impressive as this, because what you can see from their time-lapse video, which is it shouldn't be that hard to provide evidence if you've faked these things and it's all human created. You got the design off a computer. You go out in the field with your GPS and your lasers or whatever you're using to do these really complicated designs. That should be easy to prove. And in this video that we looked at anyway, there's probably 15 to 20 people, it looks like. That may be a generous mm -hmm. uh, listing there. They seem to start at around 11, 16 p.m., get done around 4.40 a.m., so five yeah. hours to make something that's maybe a fourth of this size, a third yeah. of this, you know, not even a third of this size. Yeah, and and less mathematically precise as well. I mean, it's an interesting geometric shape. Yeah, it's but not it this. Doesn't, it doesn't have the high bar of symmetry that this one requires. No, you can kind of tell by your eyes. And certainly people have been fooled on the ground. But there's just something about the more genuine, more complicated ones, to me anyway, that rings true. Well, there's another anomaly that I want to talk about. And this one came from Lucy Pringle's book. Uh, this is a book we haven't cited by name yet, as far as I know. It's called Crop Circles, The Greatest Mystery of Modern Times. And the funny thing about this book is uh, it was first published in 1999 by Thorson's, which is a division of HarperCollins by the author Lucy Pringle. I've had this book since I'm pretty sure way before we decided to do this podcast. I feel like I've personally owned this book for... <laughs> yeah at least the early 2000s. So it's nice to be able to uh, pull it out for this show. But I knew it was on my shelf somewhere. Now, on page 23 of this book, Lucy Pringle references a particular formation from June 20th, 1994, that appeared in a place called Burling Gap near Eastbourne. In this formation, there were two ovals, not particularly impressive in their complexity by any means, but one of them was unusual because it had been sliced 
a piece of it had been sliced off. So bear with me and see if I can explain this. It turns out this particular oval was bisected by a telephone pole in the field that it was uh, in. And I suppose you might think that if a crop circle occurred around a telephone pole, it would be indifferent to it and still well-formed. But in this case, it was as though the circle itself had been cut with a knife and a small portion of it was displaced by about 25 feet or so. And I'm guessing there because she doesn't indicate I'm going off the scale of a drawing of it. But in looking at a diagram of this from Pringle's book, it becomes apparent that whatever created the circle the laying down of it was interrupted or bisected by something associated with the power or electricity that was going through the telephone lines. I'm not sure if they were power lines or just phone lines, uh, which are lower voltage, but Pringle says telegraph in the book, but that could be a generic term. But either way, it looks like an electromagnetic field associated with those lines was somehow messing up the creation of one of the two ovals Mm. that was in the crops there. So this begs the question, if you're a hoaxer, would you even consider this? She described the remaining standing barley as so thick you could barely walk through it. The larger part of this oval did tangentially touch the farmer's tram lines, which made a curved path around this uh, telephone pole. However, the broken off sliver of the oval, which was all the way on the other side of the power lines, was nowhere near the tram lines. There was no clear path to create that little tiny segment that somewhat looks like uh, maybe the sun or the moon mm-hmm. on the horizon just before it disappears yeah. at night. I was really fascinated with that one because it, it does seem like it's coming down from the top because mm-hmm. if it came up from underneath, the electromagnetic field of the whatever was running through the lines wouldn't have disturbed it yeah. if it was a force that emanated from beneath the earth. Right. It seems more like the shape is raining down from the sky somehow. Projected down in a way. Yeah. Also, a point we made, I think, in part one, but I'll make it here again if, in case we didn't, or just to reiterate, is that some of these crop circle formations, the more impressive ones, don't appear near any tram lines, and there's no visible path made by people to get to it. So right. some skeptics will say, and actually some researchers who want to get to the bottom of this will say, well, you can take side steps and very carefully get out there. But again, when you need a group of people not having any evidence of human interaction gets harder and harder to do. So some of these are not near any tram lines, which you could walk out to, which would cover your tracks. They just show up, and the first tracks out there are the people that go to check them out. Right. And then the second thing I want to ask you, just to be clear, is that if it were humans making it, why would they have fluctuated with the power lines at all, right? Yeah. Yeah. Who would have thought to do that. I mean, these are pretty clever people, these hoaxers, a lot of them. But it's an afterthought. I mean, you wouldn't uh, surmise. That's really getting into the psychology (laughs) of the hoaxer who's standing out there in the field going, oh, won't this mess with them? Yeah. I'm going to slice the end of this off on the other side of the power lines. Maybe so. There is a little bit of that. Yes, there is. But but is it in every case? Is it in this case? We don't know. Well, the next thing I want to talk about is equipment malfunctions. This is something anybody who's looked at crop circles has heard about. And Pringle's book talks about this too. And a lot of these are similar in effect to ones that were cited by Colin Andrews Mm. and his team over the years as well. Uh, She actually mentions a farmer driving his combine over a quadruplet formation, attempting to use his, uh, she calls it a radio telephone. I'm not sure exactly what that means, unless this is the early days of cell back when you used to get the push to talk phone or something like that. Mm. But he was trying to use this to contact friends with a grain elevator to ask them if they could see the formation from their vantage point. And the phone wouldn't work. He couldn't get it to work at all. 
Another example, 1991, uh, Paul Vigay, a researcher who is also featured talking about this in the documentary One on Earth Inside the Crop Circle's Mystery, was visiting a pictogram crop circle formation, and he had his mother with him when she told him that her cell phone was not working, Mm -hmm. and she asked if she could borrow his. We're not positive which crop circle this is, but cross-referencing the one in the documentary with the cropcirclecenter.com database, it looks like it might be a Wiltshire pictogram formation that appeared on July 18th of 1991 in some wheat. This particular one was 360 feet long. So Mm -hmm. he is uh, standing there with his mom. She can't get her phone to work. He loans his mother his cell phone, and she has absolutely no luck. Now curious, he takes his own phone back, probably thinking he can show his mom a thing or two. He works in IT, so he's tech savvy. And he notices his phone's not working either. So both their phones have no signal. He then realizes almost by happenstance that the phone seems to work outside the formation, but not inside it. He tests this repeatedly, putting his arm outside the formation and bringing it back in. Inside, zero bars. Outside, just arm's length, full bars. Being scientifically minded, he then walked the borders of the entire pictogram and found that the interior of it was a complete dead zone for his cell phone and his mom's. Next question, how does a hoaxer accomplish this? Chris Cogswell of the Mad Scientist Podcast. (laughs) Stop picking on Chris. I'm not picking on him. I'm calling oh, him out. He's, uh, he's already been uh, traumatized from our, our, our uh, light, very light thrashing of him in part one. <laughs> well, I do. I, this is a question I have. Well, like, no, then because then you're saying like, again, perhaps. It's hella fake, yeah. as he likes to say. <laughs> LOL. How does it stop the phones from yeah. working? I guess he would say, oh, they're lying. Their phones, they didn't have any problems with their phones. Well, they that's. Mistaken. The batteries were low. I suppose that's cetera, a possibility. But here's the thing is that you could accomplish this. Again, I say that everything most everything. And that's what's great about this. Not everything. A lot of it, maybe 80% can be done by human beings. Like you could have some upped radiation if you planted something in the field underground. No human being could stack. (laughs) (laughs) You could, you could mess with people's cell reception. What's weird here is like, yeah, that's what you're saying. So in the crop circle documentary from 2009, what on earth by Suzanne Taylor, Oh, by the way, it also has a John Mack in it. I believe the Harvard psychologist who started checking into the abduction experience and UFOs and, uh, you know, his career took some hits for that. But what's interesting in the documentary is, yeah, you could hold the cell phone with your arm just outside the line and you get bars. You bring it back close to your chest inside the line, no bars. Uh, the other thing is that uh, Tim Carson, who was uh, shooting some documentary footage there, you know, his mics wouldn't work inside. Uh, so lavalier mics cut out. You couldn't get a signal. There's cases of video cameras not working or ending up blank. And also a lot of photographs that to me look like ghost photos in a way where you get a big black shadow and a, and a fuzz out in some portions of the photograph. So that's pretty weird. And that's chemical film, not digital. Uh, something's happening in a chemical film with negatives and the old fashioned cameras with the lenses and the mirrors. Yeah. There's a lot of different things going on. Uh, magnetometers going crazy. So maybe you could fake some of that with some equipment that you would have to hide or on you, or maybe you're just lying because you want to believe that weird stuff's going on. But if you take this at the data's word, meaning the calculations done by people there at the time and a lot of different people, something strange goes on inside these authentic ones. 
Well, that brings us to the Julia set, which Forrest made reference to earlier, and it's that's a mathematical set. I'm going to explain this now. So we're, we're going back to Colin Andrews and Stephen J. Spignisi's book, Crop Circles, Signs of Contact, and a chapter called The Stonehenge Julia Set. This is taken from pages 88 and 89 of the book, where the authors detail one of the most famous crop formations of all time, the Julia set. This story has an interesting factor to it. On July 7th, 1996, a pilot was flying a chartered aircraft to Stonehenge with a doctor on board who was traveling there to photograph it. Must be nice. They Mm. flew over this field at 5.15. When I went to Stonehenge, I rode a really crowded bus with a bunch of smelly people, (laughs) most of whom were my family. (laughs) Hey, I I haven't even been to Stonehenge or England, so uh, lucky you. Well, we were there on Boxing Day, which, again, Uh, poorly planned by my family, one of the dumbest days to uh, visit. I thought there was going to be a big match. Anything in England. Everything was closed. Every (laughs) single thing was closed. Stonehenge even had a giant chain link fence around it. We. I looked at it through a fence like those kids outside the playground in Terminator 2, which, but incidentally, <laughs> was the movie they were playing on the television in the bus as we rode oh, to Stonehenge. That's cheerful. Yeah, yeah, I digress. Okay. Anyway, July 7th, pilots flying the chartered aircraft to Stonehenge with the doctor on board traveling to take a picture of it. They fly over the field at 5.15 p.m. that day and presumably landed. About 45 minutes later, around 6 p.m., they're flying back on it on their way back to their origin airport. And at that point, they observed a huge crop formation below the plane within visual distance of Stonehenge itself. It was not there when they flew in 45 minutes earlier in broad daylight. This formation was 600 feet across and represented a complex mathematical fractal known as a Julia set. Now, Colin Andrews describes a Julia set as beginning with a circle with more circles spiraling away and increasing in size until peaking with a large circle in the center. It also has tiny moon circles that orbit each circle in the set, and its shape mirrors the golden mean seen in nature. More on the golden mean in part three, when we talk about the geometry a little further. Within minutes of the pilot and the doctor noticing it, people were calling the police because now folks were pulling over on the very close, busy road adjacent to it, stopping traffic trying to see it. Now, skeptics say it might have been there since the night before and just no one noticed it, but it was right next to a heavily traveled road. The pilot and the doctor flew over the field 45 minutes earlier and saw nothing. And on top of that, it's across the street from the 24-hour, heavily guarded Stonehenge. Andrews actually reached out to the Ministry of Defense, who controls the airspace over Stonehenge, and they confirmed there were no reports that day of this Julia set until 6.30 p.m. I want to read a little excerpt here from page 89 of Colin's book. This is in the second column on page 89, and it's uh, number six in a description about this, where he's responding to people who are cynical about the presentation of this Julia set. The central circle of the Julia set is directly aligned with the circle that is formed by the Stonehenge formation, and this invisible line passing through the crop formation and Stonehenge is aligned with magnetic north, the Earth's magnetic pole. The placement of the Julia set is so specific that if there had even been a slight rotation of the formation while it was being formed, then the line to magnetic north would have been misaligned. It seems unlikely that this meticulous arrangement was purely coincidental, and equally unlikely that hoaxers went to the trouble of making and executing the specific calculations necessary to achieve such an alignment. Yeah. And the picture in Colin's book, you, I mean, you just have to see it. It's the Julia set, the road, and Stonehenge. Yeah. 
like <laughs> right there. Yeah. It's a perfect postcard of weirdness. Oh yeah. This is a, uh, uh, well, there's a bouillabaisse of weirdness going on with this uh, phenomenon. That's your favorite bouillabaisse. Uh, I wish I had some. It sounds delicious. I didn't <laughs> yeah. get any dinner well, tonight. Yeah. Well, are you it's going to explain to the listener <laughs> about ley lines? Well, because a lot of people have heard this term and, and a few have written into us requesting it as a topic, I'll just uh, quickly read from Colin's book, Signs of Contact, in his A Crop Circle A to Z, which is a great book because it's almost like a handbook on, on crop circles here. Uh, he says, ley lines are invisible lines of earth energies, especially magnetism that crisscross the planet in a geodetic grid. Many sacred sites are aligned along ley lines, as are many crop circles. Psychics and sensitives using faculties similar to those employed in dowsing can, quote-unquote, read ley lines and are usually proven correct when equipment is used to register magnetic and other readings. Ley lines were originally recognized and reported by Alfred Watkins in 1921 after he noticed that an invisible straight line ran through the hilltops where ancient sacred sites were situated. So there's a connection here. A lot of people believe to these crop formations and sacred ancient sites in England. And that's why you have these things appearing near places like Avebury and the Standing Stones, and that there's some significance about this, and it connects with ley lines. Yeah, we talked about ley lines uh, with the Mothman prophecies and the junction of some uh, there in Point Pleasant. We also talked about them with the Coral Castle, and there were some theories about it being built along those way back when, when we did the Coral Castle, which was so long ago. And then prior to that, we joked about it for at least a year about how we were never going to do it. So (laughs) time is running together. Yes. Well, the next thing we want to talk about, and one of the last things before we get into some of the larger, more significant startling events, is the sounds that have occurred. And we've talked about this a little bit in part one, where Colin Andrews had said he'd heard a loud crackling sound that went to a crescendo. But the other thing are these other noises that not only he has heard, but the BBC picked up. In fact, in July of 1989, the BBC captured a sound on their recording equipment that actually destroyed one of their TV cameras. Andrews learned that this was a a 5.2 kilohertz frequency sound, and he actually collected the audio for it. And as we indicated in part one, we've actually been in touch with Colin Andrews. And he's given us permission to use this clip of audio from his website. Now, we did inquire about an interview with him, but at the moment, he's not giving any, which is his right, of course. He did, however, answer some written questions for us, and we'll be sharing those in part three of this series. But for now, we'd like to play one of the clips from his website of the sounds recorded by the BBC that are similar to sounds he's heard in other circles. Uh, The voice you'll hear speaking in this clip is Colin Andrews himself. The circle was found in the direction from which the sound had come. The first sound you're about to hear is the actual recording from the BBC television event. And next you will hear the sound as recorded at Chesford Head. Following that, you will hear the sound reduced in speed for the analysis of its contents.
Okay, that's pretty creepy, right? The slow down part. And this all reminds me of, um, I don't know, Forrest, and maybe you know this, so you're, mm. I don't want to put you on the spot here. There was a Twilight Zone or an Outer Limits where the protagonist got caught in uh, super slowed down or super sped up time. I can't remember which way it mm. went, but and he was hearing these recordings that sounded kind of like that. They were like, he had to slow it down like a thousand percent to hear that it was people talking normally. <laughs> Was do you remember this? I just watched. He was all, trapped in some yeah. kind of time shift. Uh, that's interesting. I just watched all of the Twilight Zones, finishing up a couple of months ago, and I don't remember that. But I do remember the one where, uh, no, the one you mentioned. I did eventually get to where the telephone line was draped around a headstone, and oh, yeah. the person buried there was able to call the uh, his his uh, his old flame. His old yes, fiance was making calls. Right. Well, it was interesting to me because there was this idea that this person was all by himself, which they always are in all of those, and couldn't get back to the world that they wanted to be at. But they were getting these messages and they had to slow the messages down like a thousand percent to actually hear that it was just people talking normally. And that was a sign of the difference between how fast time was going for him and right. how fast it was going for the world he wanted to be in. I digress. Now, to be fair, there are skeptics that say, well, the sounds that are being recorded are just grasshopper warblers mm -hmm. that are in the area. And turns out Paul Vigay actually studied that at Colin Andrews' request. And I want to quote this from one of Colin's webpages at his official website. Of course, since the original event, skeptics and hoaxers, including Doug and Dave, have been quick to come forward and claim that the noise was, in fact, that of the grasshopper warbler, a small bird. However, what they neglected to take into account was that the grasshopper warbler is actually quite rare, and its haunts is downs, commons, and marshes, yeah. hardly crop fields. Right. This is our, I guess, British version of the Sandhill Crane. However, <laughs> the most conclusive evidence to dismiss the grasshopper warbler was discovered sometime later whilst I was hunting through a BBC sound effects archive. I discovered a CD recording of the actual grasshopper warbler, along with all the other native warblers of the UK. I duly sampled the recordings into the computer and compared the frequency waveform and Furrier analysis of the warblers with the recording Colin had made at Operation White Crow, which we're about to talk about. The two were clearly not the same as shown by a diagram that he has on the website. We'll have a link to that website, but you can see all the waveform comparisons that he made there. Obviously, you can't see a diagram on the podcast. But yes, we have a link to it. It'll be in our show notes. Now, we had some difficulty getting the, uh, just if anybody goes to that website, we had some difficulty getting those embedded clips to play on Colin's website due to them being wrapped within an older plugin, but we were able to download it anyway, which is how we played it for you tonight. Now this brings us to one of the larger, more significant events, particularly as it relates to Colin Andrews and his research team. We're going to talk about two tonight. There's two code names that are going to come up. Now, I mean, they're not really code names. Uh, still, they were the names for some specific operations set up by Colin Andrews and his colleagues to make as scientific an observation as possible of some promising areas where crop circle formations were known to appear every season. The first of these two operations was called Operation White Crow. The second was called Operation Blackbird, and much like our two-sided coin analogy, their names call into being a series of events that you'd consider to be polar opposites. Mm -hmm. According to his book, Operation White Crow was a turning point for Colin, a turning point in belief relating to the aforementioned sounds of the circles, because in Operation White Crow, a series of events unfolded that defy explanation. Now, from the outside looking in, these are so fantastic that you're going to come down in one of two camps. You're simply not going to believe they happened, or you're going to buy into the fact that there's something much bigger going on here than anyone is aware of. 
having been in the odd position of having what is referred to as a personal experience mm. at the Sally House mm. with the EVP we collected there, I have a unique perspective on what it's like to be a rational, even-killed, critical thinker that's trying to relay a chain of events that simply do not make sense to the world at large. I know what that feels like. And I know there's people out there who think differently of me since our Sally House series, <laughs> whichever way they come down, whether it's on my personal side or on one of disbelief. Right. But like Colin, when we got that EVP that many of you have heard, I was not alone. Our entire team of core people was there, and they all witnessed the setup, deployment, and result of what we recorded there. They all know that it really happened and that there was no subterfuge. So what I want to say here is that I admire Colin Andrews' willingness to come forward and share this story, well, not only to share it, but to put it in print for the whole world to read. Because what happens when you do that is folks either finally get on board with what you've been personally experiencing, or they step back and say, okay, I'm not buying this, time to move on. Now, I can't speak for Colin, but I know for me, that's actually a liberating feeling to say, hey, this happened. I know it sounds crazy, but it happened. It was as real to me and the folks that were with me as the computer I'm typing this outline on right now. I don't really care if you believe me because when it happened, it happened not only to me, but for me. The event itself is the message, and what it does to your own analysis as a result, well, that's the point of it. Again, not speaking for Colin, but when it comes to the File 10 recording from our Sally House series, I speak the truth when I say I don't care who believes me or us about its veracity. I know the truth, and that truth has definitely changed the way I see the world. But here these few years later, my mindset has evolved as a result of it, and I'm ready to get back out in the field for more investigations, but this time I will go both protected and better informed. So... (laughs) <laughs> I can only imagine how these events, as they unfolded for Colin, how they improved his process and his approach as he started to experience things and be more prepared for unusual stuff to happen while he was in the field. Now, when you study something, as long as Colin and his colleagues uh, have studied crop circles, reality is if there are real unknown phenomenon, sooner or later, something's going to happen to you. And that's exactly what happened during Operation White Crow. And the bulk of what follows comes from Chapter 10 of Crop Circles, Signs of Contact, beginning on page 107, uh, again, written by Colin Andrews and Stephen J. Spignisi. Now, we'll have a link to places that you can purchase this book in our show notes for this episode at our website, as we always do with any book we mention, as long as it's still in print or used copies can be found. They can and they are. And they are listed. Yes, I managed to get that done at least. Uh, (laughs) Well, this particular incident happened at a place known as the Devil's Punch Bowl. Ooh, delicious. And you guessed it, (laughs) Chessfoot Head in 1989. Oh, just quickly, yes. There's a term here that you'll see that maybe a lot of uh, uh, Yanks and other people uh, from all different places of the world will hear not get is a natural amphitheater. And that's kind of a a depression in the land, which forms a little bit of a bowl. So that's why they call it like a natural amphitheater, which is just a depression. And that's where Colin first saw his first Celtic cross formation, which set him on this journey. So in this particular incident, Colin and his team had a lot of surveillance equipment and people for this crop circle stakeout, Mm -hmm. my turn, (laughs) not his. And after getting all set up, his team decided to walk away from all the hubbub to a crop circle in a field adjoining the one they had set up in. About eight people were present. They all took a seat in this pre-existing neighboring circle, but he points out they did not attempt to meditate or make any kind of contact with what he now believed was an intelligence associated with the creation of authentic circles. At once... They heard a sound coming from the east, getting louder as it approached them. 
It was easy to triangulate where it was coming from, but there was nothing to see with their eyes. No source could be identified. It was the dark of night, and Colin points out that everyone there was a reasonable and rational person, but they were also by now open to the idea of alternate realities. Still, whatever made the sound could not be seen, and the closer it got, the more they became frightened. Eventually, the sound stopped moving, and at this point, it was directly in front of Colin's friend and colleague, NASA engineer, Pat Delgado. I'll read this excerpt directly from Andrews and Spignisi's book. This is from page 108. And then it got really weird. As Pat stood there at the edge of the circle, he called out, Colin, come to me. And then he cupped his left hand and began to scoop in the air at the top of the plants closest to the sound and push this energy in my direction. I walked towards him, and when I reached him, he continued his odd cupping and scooping motion across the top of the plants, pushing the air towards me, specifically towards my solar plexus. He aimed it straight at the pit of my stomach. I stood there and went along with this, not knowing how to respond or what to say. After a bit, Pat stopped and I backed away. I turned around, walked back to the group, and sat down. I was confused and frightened and knew that something strange was occurring. Pat then started to walk toward us. When he reached a point about 25 to 30 feet away from us, he stopped in his tracks and his head went back as though he were about to fall backwards. It was a most extraordinary sight, and I truly did not understand what was going on. As I stared at this incredible sight, he then beckoned to me. Incredibly, his body then leaned back on a 10 to 15 degree angle. He hung there suspended as though he were leaning against a cushion or perhaps something more solid. At this point, Pat was absolutely terrified. I could see fear in his eyes, and he started shouting to me, Colin, come and hold me up. I rushed to him and grabbed both his hands and tried to pull him to an upright position. I felt great pressure pulling against me, and it was as though Pat was stuck to glue. I continued to tug at him, and then suddenly he was free. It felt as though a bond had snapped and his body was released from the force that had been holding him. At that precise moment that Pat was pulled free, the crop circle sound stopped. This was, quite literally, one of the worst things that had ever happened to me or Pat. Upset and shaken, we returned to the group and sat down, but after only a few moments, Pat said, let's get the hell out of here, and we all left the circle. And the next morning from this, a police officer actually came up and told them that another new circle had formed uh, just out of their line of sight, exactly in the direction that the sound had gone. Colin became convinced that they interrupted a circle being made that night He said, and I quote at the end of this chapter on page 109, Pat Delgado was caught in the maelstrom that night, and he pulled me into it with him. Wow. What it would have been like to have been there and experienced that. Yeah, that's. it sounds like something out of a horror movie. It's almost like the ring or something when when his head (laughs) flopped back, and then he's like leaning back but not falling over. And 10 to 15 degrees is a lot. That's a pretty good lean that is defying the laws of gravity and the laws of physics. It, it doesn't make sense. And so it's scary. That is scary. That's, you know. Yeah, it's further back than you could lean on your heels and not fall over. Yeah. And most people know what that looks like. And when you see that happening, it's disturbing. Well, I'll because, tell you what it looks like front ways. It looks like yeah. Michael Jackson in Smooth Criminal when he's on stage and he yes. leans way forward. But I know for a fact, because yes. I read a whole thing about this, there were little yeah. pegs in the shoes 
and he locked uh-huh. his toes, the front of the shoes, into those pegs, and then he was able to <laughs> lean forward without falling. So, and I'm just, I'm doubting yeah. that Pat had something like that out in the field that night. So, as cool as uh, that would have been, but this is another point I was going to make. Their experience would be probably a lot like you and me in how we approach stuff. You know, they're scientists, whatever. Yes, they had a medium who seems specialized in psychometry, which is getting impressions and feelings from touching things or being close to them. But the rest of these guys, I think, came at it with an attitude that we would. Intense curiosity, wanting to document things correctly, but also being open-minded to the experience and trying new things, not just discounting it all as some kind of hooey. But here's the point I was going to make. Talk about scary. This sounded a lot like the abduction experience in a way. Yeah. And what Colin and Pat said about it was it wasn't good. Well, he said it was the worst thing that happened to him in his life to that point. Can I, I want to throw something in there though, because I know Colin's listening. He told us he was going to listen. Trying to to stay true to the story here. And Colin, you're welcome to send in corrections when this series gets done and we'll we'll share them Mm -hmm. with the audience. But he also made clear later on, or not necessarily later, it was all through his work. It seems like he recognized that there was a relationship between the level of fear he had and what came back. And that when he let go of the fear, things became much more benign. He did point that out a few times. Yeah, no, no. I, I had read that as well. And that's my second point is that a lot of it is so interactive. It's an unknown force or intelligence that we are most likely dealing with here. A lot of it is based on the experience that you have with it. Like a lot of the paranormal, a lot of it to me seems like there are parallels between this experience and other similar paranormal experiences, like I said, with some UFO experiences and that it's very unknown. You're you're very frightened, especially when there's claimed interaction with other beings. They don't really understand. Their brains don't work like ours. They're wondering why we're strapped to a table screaming, as Rich likes to joke about. It's like, <laughs> what can we do to get you to stop screaming, please? <laughs> yeah. Uh, because they don't they don't understand. It's like, you know, their attitude is like, well, you're going to forget all this anyway. Why, what's, what are you so upset about? It's like, well, no, we don't like this. We don't know what this is. We don't know how to deal with it or think about it. So it's very traumatic and frightening. But maybe over time, you have a different understanding of it as a human being. But it's it's so weird that at first it is completely terrifying. So there were things to me that sounded like the abduction experience in that some people have okay experiences interacting with intelligences connected to the UFO experience. Some do not. Some have very horrible ones. But in connection with this, a lot of it seems to be how you mentally and emotionally interact with it, determining what type of experience or takeaway feeling that you have. Because in one sense, it could be like electricity as a force that's unseen or electric light. It's beneficial. It improves our lives. It lights our way. It heats our homes. It it cooks our food. But if you stick your finger in the light socket, it's going to give you a shock and it can kill you. But you have to know how to interact with it and how to respect it. And there's, uh, you know, again, that's a non-thinking force, electricity as a whole, but it's also invisible and it's powerful. Here, there seems to be a consciousness or intelligence that comes with it, but we may not be able to line up with it correctly in a way that was attempted in the experiment in the crop circle. Like, please come back and communicate with us. But there seems to be something that has to happen 
But as far as the number of people and the way it was supposed to happen, there is a rudimentary, it seems, set of instructions or communications happening between the phenomenon and the people in the circle. It also reminded me a little bit about the experience that Greg Newkirk had in Hellier when he's doing the the Gansler experiment, I think, uh, in the cave and what he's describing. It sounds a little bit like, not abduction, but a a linking up with an alien intelligence of some kind and, and just the feelings that you get, which aren't totally pleasant. So that's my point is that sometimes, a lot of times perhaps, it's not totally pleasant, but it's also not that harmful in a way. And then the second point I want to make, Scott, and you'll be familiar with this as a former video editor. Well, you're still a current video editor. Not we so don't much. deal as much. <laughs> we don't deal More as much of a hobby. With, with tape. <laughs> yes. Now, it's, now that's become the expensive hobby. Yes. Well, Scott, you know what that sound reminded me of, and I'm sure maybe you too, when we tried to listen to it from the original webpage, which was not easy, but you got a blip of that sound. Yes. What? Yeah. What did it remind you of? Time code. The audible portion of time code. So yeah. didn't we talk about that in Frederick Valentich? Yeah, we mentioned uh, in part three, because we were talking about the last recording and some of the sounds they heard from his aircraft uh, being similar to time code, which is interesting when you think about the parallels of otherworldly sounds coming across like this. And, you know, just a real brief explanation of it is that it's a frame of reference for syncing, for synchronization in video sources. uh, It isn't around as much anymore in an analog form, but you used to be able to pipe it through uh, patch bays and hear it. And it sounded very similar to the sound in the field and to Valentich's last recording. It's like a beep tone thing. Right. The end viewer of something never hears it. They see it as a window that records the, right. uh, the number of frames that are going by. If you're looking exactly. at what they call a work print that shows you. So that when you stop, you can say, Ooh. oh, it's right here. This is where, this is the <laughs> shot. It's this many seconds right. of frames or whatever. So that's the time. Right. Point. Yeah. What Scott's talking about, because it's also needed for digital video media. So it's essentially a timeline that's extremely accurate down to the frame on video, whether it's analog or digital time code is necessary. And we, I'm sure we've all seen it in video clips where you see the, the numbers running at the bottom. Yes. That's what it is. It's counting each frame. So video runs at about 30 frames per second, actually 29.97. And there's a bit of adjustment there, but in the analog video world, that's an actual audio track. And if you plug that sound into a speaker, This is what you're going to hear. So folks, that is what time code sounds like. But as Scott alluded to, that's only meant to be read or picked up by a machine. In this case, a VTR, videotape recorder or videotape player. Yes, it's not meant to be heard by humans because we hear it as just twittering noise. But another machine that can pick that up and read it sees that as very accurate time clock data. That's my point here. What if that noise has data in it that we just don't understand? And to us, it sounds maybe like a grasshopper warbler, which shouldn't be there because it's not its habitat. As Colin said, there's a lot of good rebuttals to that, is that, you know, its habitat are the marshy areas. It doesn't sing for hours on end like it did here. Right. It shouldn't be happening at night. So there's a lot of good uh, rebuttals. And when it seems that, it doesn't actually... break professional production cameras. Yes. I, I can't say for certain, Scott, yeah. but I'm going to guess yes. What is the strange noise that we're hearing? Is there a message? Is there data or thought or just raw data that we don't understand that is coming through? But maybe there's a way to interpret that one of these days, unless you have to be one of these 
consciousnesses to understand it. I'm sorry, how many syllables was that? Consciousnesses. Yeah. <laughs> multiple consciousnesses. Okay. Who have, uh, yes, they have their own language, yeah. much like in contact with the Venusians. Yes. So the idea is that they're thinking in 3D because they're a highly advanced race and they're a lot smarter than us. We only think in uh, one or two dimensions. All right. Or kind of like Rip Torn in Defending Your Life. <laughs> if, I can tell you what I'm being, thinking, but you wouldn't understand. Yeah. And that's what was happening here. Maybe when you're exposed to some kind of raw data or communication, it's an unpleasant feeling because we're not meant to handle that. But in another sense, perhaps we can begin to understand it, or there's a way that this, uh, whatever this force is, is trying to get us to understand. And you know what? The easiest thing for us to understand is a very ornate and slightly mysterious, beautiful crop pattern in a form of sacred geometry that all of us humans, and in a sense of, an, it's an entoptic idea that we may touch on in part three, where things that happen inside your eyeballs, essentially, that have communal meaning between all humans. Some of these ancient Guanguian images, they say, have some kind of primal connection to all of us. That's why they're recognizable. That's why when we see something that exhibits beautiful sacred geometry and the golden mean in a field, which shouldn't be there, or even if it's human-made, it has meaning to us which is significant and communal. So anyway, that's my second point. And then just the third thing I wanted to mention here is that I remembered we do have a name for the Milk Hill formation that appeared in 2001. You know, that one that is, uh, for you European folks, 238 meters across. For the Yanks, 780 feet across, composed of 409 circles. And what that uh, is called, at least by the photo caption that I cut and paste from somewhere else and stuck onto our site. It's called a double or six-sided triskelion, consisting of three interlocking spirals. So the image we have on there, that credit goes to Handy Marks uh, for that aerial photography bit, it, but it's just spectacular. So yes, if it's a group of people, uh, my hat's off to you because that is outstanding. If it's uh, another worldly intelligence, then it got our attention. Hi, I'm Julie Fisk, and when I'm not listening to Ghost Stories for the Haunted AF podcast, I am binging Astonishing Legends. Seriously, I can't quit. Now back to the show. All right, now we're going to segue into some of the more prominent hoaxing ideas involved with crop circles. This is something that we wanted to get out of the way here in part two, because in part three, we're moving past this. We're going to move past that, and that's the overall theme of the uh, trajectory that than our coverage of this is going to take. But I wanted to start here with the 1990s because that was a significant time for crop circles. Research into them was becoming more sophisticated, interest in them more widespread and noted, and attempts to figure out just who or what was creating them became even more of a priority. And it would seem that efforts to prevent those origins from coming to light were ramping up too. Now, the question for our listeners, that's you guys, listen right now, is why was getting to the bottom of this becoming so confused? One of the turning points for two members of the original Crop Circle research team that had already been researching over a dozen years was something known as Operation Blackbird. Now, we already talked about Operation White Crow, and that's where all that crazy stuff happened to Pat Delgado and to those mm. folks there that were really just trying to take a break in a, in a neighboring crop circle while they were setting up a surveillance operation. 
It wasn't even the one they were studying. That's where that happened. But this was a different story. And Colin Andrews writes about this in great detail in his book, Crop Circle Signs of Contact, which was co-authored by Stephen J. Spignisi and published in 2003 by New Page Books, a division of Career Press. Now, chapter 14 of this book is dedicated to Operation Blackbird, in fact. And before we go into this particular event, we want to make clear that even though we're highlighting this here, it's really just a flash of time in a decades-long career of intense research into crop circles by Mr. Andrews. He has extensively cataloged hundreds, if not thousands, of crop circle formations, detailing their locations, time of year, the formations, appearance, construction, and also eyewitnesses. And we'll remind you that Mr. Andrews and his friends and uh, researchers Pat Delgado and pilot Busty Taylor were the men behind Circular Evidence, the very first book on crop circles. And Colin himself actually coined the phrase crop circles. These guys are the OG investigators of this (laughs) phenomenon. Well, in July of 1990, having been at this for a dozen years or more now, Nippon Television from Japan and the BBC approached Andrews and Delgado, offering to provide them with extensive and sophisticated equipment to help them hopefully catch a crop circle actually being created. Now, for their location, Colin chose Bratton Castle in Wiltshire, England, an Iron Age fort that sat on land that was actually owned by the Ministry of Defense. They had to get permission to conduct their research there, and Andrews implied in his book that that permission might have come a little too easily, as we'll see. He indicated that this particular experiment was 90% funded by Nippon TV and 10% funded by the BBC. Now, shortly after they set up the equipment they had, they were approached by representatives from both of those networks, as well as two uniformed officers from the British Army, who asked them to step away from all the activity because a large crowd had gathered, and they wanted to talk to them in private. So they were driven away from the site where they were told that the military wanted to provide additional equipment for them, including cutting-edge night vision technology with the highest resolution available at the time. Andrews and Delgado were, of course, thrilled to have access to this stuff, but unfortunately, this was the beginning of an elaborate and well-planned setup that only hindsight would make clear. They all discussed how, with this gear, if something happened, there was no way they wouldn't get proof of it. The only stipulation was that two military officers would be required to operate this backpack-mounted equipment, but that made sense as they were trained for that. According to Andrew's book, they now had over $2 million worth of gear on site, or that would be $4 million in today's money. They were planning on 24-hour surveillance that would continue for, I think, 10 days. I can't remember exactly the duration, but people would be on station throughout the night during the surveillance time. Andrews and Delgado, as well as some of the other researchers, would go to their nearby homes when it got late and were to be awakened if anything happened. Andrews lived close by in the adjacent county, I believe. On the second night of Operation Blackbird, he was called late in the evening and told a complex design had appeared in the darkness. He called a Nippon TV crew that had been on standby, and they went to the site at Bratton Castle. Nippon was the primary funding behind the operation, so they had dibs on any revealing footage. They got uh, first rights. When Andrews arrived, he was greeted by people who told him something had happened and that lights had been seen over the field and everything had been captured on camera. The whole operation was only two days old on this day. It was July 25th, 1990, and he was excited that they had gotten something. He'd been informed that the formation was first sighted between 3.30 and 3.45 a.m. When the sun came up, but notably before Andrews was able to observe the formation himself up close, he was asked to announce the event on live television. 
he notes that they had asked for helicopters to get an accurate aerial view of it, but those had still not arrived, so they hadn't had a chance to fly over it. Now, at this point, Colin Andrews went on live TV for both Nippon TV as well as the BBC and said the following. This is quoting from his own book, Crop Circles, Signs of Contact, on page 133 from chapter 11 about Operation Blackbird. Yes, we have an event here of greatest importance, and we are very much excited, as you can imagine. We do have two major ground markings which have appeared in front of all the surveillance equipment, performing absolutely to form for us. We had a situation at approximately 3.30 a.m. this morning. On the monitor, a number of orange lights taking the form of a triangle. It is a complex situation, and we are analyzing it at the moment, but there is undoubtedly something here for science. At this point, reporters said to Colin, I'm sure you have the nation agog. Are you quite sure you couldn't have been the victim of some elaborate hoax last night? Colin Andrews replied, No, not indeed. We have high-quality equipment here, and we have indeed secured on high-quality equipment a major event. We do have something here of great, great significance. Yes, we have everything on film, and we do have, as I say, a formed object over the field. We are doing nothing more until we have helicopters over the top to film in detail what we have before anyone enters the field. Andrews describes this as, quote, a regrettable milestone in his research career, end quote. And you're about to find out why. He had been deftly set up, set up to take the grandest fall he possibly could on live television in front of the whole world. He readily admits in his book he shouldn't have said this was definitely a real event, having not seen any of the evidence himself yet. It turns out the lights that were seen were real. Many witnesses saw them. They were lights, are you ready for this, coming Mm. from a hot air balloon being flown over by none other than Sir Richard Branson, British <laughs> billionaire. I guess he was a millionaire back then, either that oh, or... Oh, that rascal. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. So he apparently coincidentally flew a silent airship with lights on it over the exact field that this experiment was taking place on the night the formation appeared, in quotes. Mm. Colin points out that Branson made it clear later that it was totally a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Once the sun rose and the helicopters finally showed up, Andrews and his fellow researchers entered the field. Not going up in the helicopters, I take it, uh, but walking into the field. Now, I'm now going to read this paragraph from page 134 of Andrews' book. What we discovered was a disgrace to the British government and to everyone else involved in the perpetration of one of the biggest deceits in crop circle history. Oh, yes, there was a crop formation in the field beneath Bratton Castle. But it was not only obviously man-made, it was quite obviously poorly man-made. We had been set up. The crop circle that had been constructed was ragged and unlike anything we had seen before. There was considerable damage to the crops, noticeable irregularities in the lines and circles, and, gilding the lily in a way only a bureaucracy could conceive of doing, there were items deliberately placed in the middle of the main circle, including a horoscope game board and a wooden cross. Ooh. Spooky. It wasn't spooky, though. It was ridiculous. Oh. It was it was a thumb <laughs> yeah. and that when you see the pictures of it, it was absurd. It's meant to be insulting. Exactly. Sometime later, an anonymous military contact reached out to a fellow researcher of Colin Andrews, George Wingfield, and he stated the following, quote, the Bratton hoax was carried out by a specially trained unit of the army and the order came directly from the Ministry of Defense. The operation was carefully planned, prepared in advance, and then carried out in complete darkness quickly and precisely. My informant was even able to speak with an officer who was involved in the planning of the operation, which had the highest secrecy level, end quote. Mm, Well, 
Yeah, you would think this story would end here, but Colin Andrews stayed at Bratton Castle, having been tricked into embarrassing himself on television. He still had the gear that Nippon TV provided, and 10 days later, a real formation occurred at that field. And on top of that, it was captured on a camera, apparently known as the yellow camera. He was off-site when it happened, and once again, summoned back, arriving within the hour and asking for the tape. Someone told him it had been viewed once, placed in a locked box, which he could see, and he was told he wouldn't be allowed to watch it. He had no way of knowing if the real tape was in the box. He then found out that the real tape from the yellow camera had been taken off-site, and he was sworn to secrecy in order to hand the locked box with the decoy tape over to a senior representative of Nippon TV who had no idea it was fake. So on top of that, by the way, the fake tape had footage, presumably from that camera, but from a different night. And Uh I guess when it got back to Japan, they spent a lot of time analyzing it and looking for something on it, not knowing that it wasn't even the right night. Right. As of the publication of the book, Crop Circle Signs of Contact, Colin had never seen the tape. We're presuming he still hasn't and that no one has outside of whomever took it away that night. Boy, I wish we could see it. I wonder what's on there. I know. That is so sensitive that they had to go through this shell game to hide it. Yeah, it seems like if it was just a couple of dudes with planks or even the military faking a circle, why would you disappear the tape? Makes no sense, right? right? Or just even claim there's a tape there, you know? Yeah. Well, years later, a friend of Andrew's at the BBC informed him that BBC Radio was broadcasting live from the Bratton location even after the initial hoax. And when that second event occurred that was captured on the yellow camera, the Ministry of Defense, again, invoked a D notice, the letter D, to the BBC, which is a suspension of broadcasting due to a possible threat to national security. Here's uh, what I found on the Wikipedia page about that. It's called a DSMA notice. Listen to this. In the United Kingdom, a DSMA notice, Defense and Security Media Advisory Notice, is an official request to news editors not to publish or broadcast items on specified subjects for reasons of national security. DSMA notices were formerly called a DA notice, Defense Advisory Notice, and before that called a Defense Notice, D Notice, until 1993. As of 2020, the system is still in use in the United Kingdom. A similar system was previously operational in Australia, but has fallen into disuse. So to recap, 10 days after the hoax design was used to trick Andrews into his embarrassing declaration on national television, a real formation appeared and was captured on camera only to have the tape from that camera absconded with and replaced with a dummy tape which apparently showed the same field from an early date. And on top of that, the Ministry of Defense ordered BBC Radio to cease broadcasting for four hours from the site that night. So here's my question. If you have then later photographic or video evidence of a real formation happening and you hand the fake tape to Nippon TV and anybody else, and they say, well, there's no formation on this tape. How does that jibe? Because here's what I love about crop circles. They exist. They're there. It's not just something people see in the sky and maybe some people saw it. Maybe it's misinterpreted. It's there to be analyzed at least for a couple of weeks until the farmer harvests the grain around it and then it's gone. Yeah, but it still even grows then, back the next year, though, a lot of times. You can yeah, so a lot of, yeah. <laughs> that's what I was about to yeah. say. Sometimes it's not gotten rid of that easily. Yeah. Sometimes the snow falls and there's patterns, strangely, that come up through the snow as snow circles sometimes. So a lot of strange phenomenon going here. But in this case, yeah, a real circle appeared. You can see it. No one knows how it got there. So you hand the media outlet a tape, but there's no circle on it. Like, what what are they trying to explain there? It'd be different if you handed them a tape of some dudes 
in the field with rollers and planks to say, well, yeah, we have footage of it, but it was people who made this one. Yeah. Are you trying to diffuse the situation? Are you just trying to obfuscate it? Or what's the goal? Or it could Mm -hmm. be just making everything confusing. That might be the goal, especially with international governments. Yes. Well, it's my opinion that Colin Andrews, you know, made an error here. He would say that too. Mm -hmm. Not only does he admit it, he published another book about it where he plainly states what happened and takes culpability for it. The part that struck me as so tragic about it is that the only thing he was guilty of in Operation Blackbird was being too trusting. I mean, it seems to me he went out there with the intention of furthering his research, trying to get to the bottom of how crop circles are formed and by what, even if it's hoaxers, and he was the first guy to really take notice of them and start cataloging them, along with his friends and fellow researchers Pat Delgado and Busty Taylor. Now, these guys were in it for the right reasons, and being the guy that coined the term crop circles, it seems like he painted a target on his own back. Can you imagine how exciting it was to be able to graduate from bootstrapping your surveillance operations after years of -of out-of-pocket expenses for gear, untold hours documenting these things, endless time in fuel and a light aircraft, to be able to not only have access to good production equipment from two major national networks, but then to be told the military is also going to provide state-of-the-art night vision technology? That must have seemed like a dream come true, because if a circle shows up, by God, you're going to get proof of how it's made. But that's just the thing. All those promises were custom designed to make a fool out of him and his colleagues. It was all part of a plan to completely assassinate his character and reputation and make him look foolish, and frankly, it pisses me off. We've covered a fair amount of stuff over the years, and this isn't the first time we've seen something like this happen to someone who is earnestly trying to solve a mystery. I'm reminded of episode 28, part two of our three-part series on the Knights of the Golden Circle, when Bob Brewer had done all those years of hard work deciphering codes to find lost treasure in the American West, and the partner he was working with misled him, trespassed on private land, and dug whatever he could find up after lying to Bob about it and saying he'd wait so they could do it together. That kind of stuff just chaps my hide, but at least in this case, Colin Andrews wasn't being stabbed in the back by a personal friend. He's very careful not to say, at least in Signs of Contact, who may have actually hoaxed the circle. And we've read further material suggesting all sorts of things, including, if you can believe this, a band I've referenced on the show before, the KLF. <laughs> Did I surprise you with that one, Forrest? Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a, yes and no. Yeah, there's a great bit on this at a wonderful website called thecroppy.co.uk. We have a link to it. But an excerpt from a conversation there with the director of several of their music videos reads as follows. Uh, the director's name is Bill Butt. Quote, I have spoken at length with Bill Butt, and he assures me that the band did not send the jams letter to Colin Andrews. This was a letter Mm. supposedly that came from the KLF to him saying that they did the fake circle at Bratton Castle. Mm -hmm. The reason they called the jams letter J-A-M-M-S is because the KLF, they were into a whole Illuminati thing, and that was an acronym for the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo, which is a whole, I'm not getting into all that right now. But uh, they said that uh, neither were they responsible But they also said they were just not responsible for the Bratton hoax. On this, they are quite adamant, and there is every reason to believe them, end quote. That's from Bill Butt. There's more on this, but that tangent is even too tangential for us right now, perhaps a conversation for Patreon. I digress. Coming back to my point, Mm. Colin Andrews was likely being stabbed in the back by his own government. Because let's look back at this scenario. They were probably pleased as punch when he chose a site that already belonged to the Ministry of Defense. They do all of this advanced planning, set him up to take a fall, convince him that he's finally got the proof he's always wanted, trick him into announcing it on live TV while the helicopters are conveniently delayed to give him or uh, the other folks with him a bird's eye view, and then waiting in the aftermath to watch him and his colleagues disappear from the world stage. 
The only thing he's guilty of here is trusting that people mean what they say. We'll, of course, come back to this in our conclusions in part three, but for those of you taking notes at home, as we've joked about in the past, you have Mm. to really ask yourself when you hear this part of the crop circle story, why was it so important to discredit Colin Andrews and Pat Delgado? They've both Mm. been tricked on two different occasions now. After all, crop circles are just made by a couple of old guys with a plank and some wire, right? Which brings us to the next section of this story. Well, actually, one of the other members of the triumvirate here of researchers, Dr. Terrence Meaden, was also fooled by the Wessex skeptics who had gone out into a field. We're going to talk a little bit about this perhaps when we get to discussing that documentary I mentioned earlier that features more of the hoaxers in it. And the Wessex skeptics had faked a circle and had Dr. Terrence Meaden come look at it. And he was pretty certain. I think he signed off. At least this is the testimony that of the gentleman that appears in the documentary, Dr. Robin Allen, a younger guy with glasses. You'll see him. And he's this is his claim is that, and I'm sure he's being truthful, is that Dr. Meaden said, uh, yes, absolutely, this is uh, genuine. And then when they confronted him with, well, we created this. You know, here's the proof. We did this and and you were tricked. He came back apparently and said, well, yeah, if you're some people who are scientists with doctorates and, and high degrees, then this is a lot easier than average folks. And Dr. Robin Allen disagreed with that, saying, well, anybody could do this. And obviously, these are all then man-made and uh, gotcha. So it's easy, as I said before, to even have experts, seriologists, tricked, depending on what they're looking at. It takes a long time and a lot of different details to come to the conclusion that something is more genuine than perhaps likely to be man-made. So I think there are a lot of factors that need to be analyzed that seriologists do when they try to determine which circle is real or hoaxed. And it takes a while. And you can be fooled, even if you study this for a long time. And unfortunately, these uh, three gentlemen that we're talking about have seemed to have all been fooled at some point, and it was captured on camera. So you got to watch out for that. And I think you're right, Scott, is that if they're guilty of something, it's really being too trusting and wanting to share and, and maybe jumping to a conclusion before really fully having analyzed and studied it. But at the same time, they're being pressured for an answer. And you don't know what spot of the crop circle they're taking you to. Maybe it's one where they really braided and plated the, uh, at least I think that's what uh, Dr. Robin Allen said, is that, you know, he was looking at the plating, meaning uh, it's the woven pattern. And Dr. Allen said, well, you know, that's just how it happened and how it laid down. We didn't do anything special, but he saw that as something significant. So there you go. These people are seeing things that are significant in these crop circles, which any hoaxer can do and make. And that's what we did. And uh, he was easily fooled. Therefore, it's all humbug. The other thing that I'll say about this is something that I mentioned as we were starting this series and we were talking about posting part one and what we were going to call it. I knew we couldn't call it this, but there was a part of me that wanted to call it the crop circle war because Mm. (laughs) this does feel like a war. It feels like a war between hoaxers and scientists who are trying to determine the origins of these things. And they are going at it back and forth. But the thing that's even more prevalent here is that there's something in the middle and that's the Mm -hmm. thing we can't figure out. And that's the part that's really going to melt your noodle when we get to part three. Believe it or not, these two groups, as you say, share a symbiosis. They are working together in ways they may not even realize, but we're going to see instances where 
perhaps they're starting to realize that, at least here in this phase, in this decade of the early to mid-90s. Both sides are realizing there's something bigger going on than the both of them put together. All right, let's circle back around to Doug and Dave, or Doug Bauer Mm. and Dave Chorley. We talked about them in part one, and now we return to them. I just said, let's circle back around. I did not do that on purpose. I'm sorry. I apologize for that. Oh, you did. I loved it. Yes. Yes, Well, let's circle back around using a pictogram. (laughs) Well, these are the two old guys who were hoaxing the crop circles, right? We all know that. They made all of them going back to... The year 815 in Leon, France, right? Let's, Forrest, what can you tell <laughs> hey, well, us about? Let's let's go further. Let's drill further down on Doug and Dave here. <laughs> you just reminded me of uh, another one of my favorite Mitch Hedberg jokes. I believe in past lives, but I also have a really big ego. So when I go into a museum, I say, I could have done that. <laughs> so that's like, yeah, so maybe they could have done that if they were yeah. Uh, yeah, in a past life, just practicing for this one. But the reason we are spending so much time, Scott and I discussed this, we, we talk philosophically between ourselves when we're hashing out an outline, because a lot of times it, it helps us get our heads around the idea, especially something this big. It's like, what are we doing here? What are the main points? What should we focus on? Well, as Scott was alluding to earlier, the hoaxing phenomenon is it's covered by all of them, and they're ready to admit what happened to them and, and how they may have gotten rooked and what importance hoaxers play in this phenomenon, because they do play an important part perhaps much more than they realize starting off, but later come to feel. Feeling is a big thing here we're going to talk about. Even some modern day hoaxers are talking about strange feelings. But I think for the average listener who has perhaps heard in the past, as we start off the theme of uh, part one, heard that these two old guys were responsible for all of it. There you go. It's done, right? I mean, they said they did it. Yeah, it's mystery solved. And we can be done with it because, you know, it's funny. I saw a clip from the Today Show that I think uh, Jeremy Corbell put up about the the triangular pyramid-shaped objects seen by Navy personnel from the destroyer Mm -hmm. with night vision. Yeah. Do you remember uh, I, I Savannah, Savannah Guthrie, Guthrie had and Hoda Kotb did yeah. the story? Yeah, yeah. Yes, love those ladies. Yeah. But Savannah had a curious thing where she was kind of joking around there and and, and laughing, and she says, "You know what? Uh, I was much more comfortable back when I could think that these things weren't real." Yeah, she was one of the. I didn't want to know. She was the head in the sand yeah. comment. Yeah, that she that's what was, yeah. But I understand that because what she's saying is that now there are these implications that we must consider because. Our own government and military in the Pentagon are saying that at least the footage is real. We, we may not know what these things are, but believe it, folks, this stuff is on tape. It's a small form of revelation and disclosure. So in the previous years, though, it was very easy, like we just talked about, Operation Blackbird, where you can discredit, uh, you could do an ad hominem on somebody and say, like, well, there you go. That person's a nutcase and they're way off track and they don't know what they're talking about. It's all just this. And as we alluded to at the end of part one, perhaps Doug and Dave themselves were used for this very purpose and that they were put up to this for the 13 years that they said that they've been creating these crop circles, that there's a purpose to this. And it may have just been very mundane and that uh, they were asked to by government or military forces, because then everybody can rest easy. Like, look, it's just these two old guys that did it right. We're done. You don't have to think about it anymore. So that's why we believe it's really important to cover the story of Doug and Dave, because they're so essential 
in a lot of the public opinion formed around crop circles, which Colin himself has said, yes, they muddied the waters, but they really did their job in that they created a lot of confusion and doubt for this subject. Well, Doug and Dave were two elderly British gentlemen who lived in the Southampton area in Hampshire, who came forward in 1990 claiming they created all the crop circles in England. And their claim was reported in the UK tabloid newspaper Today. And I believe it was this newspaper that was employed in tricking Pat Delgado. So there you go. There's a, a media involvement as well. Well, their claim, Doug and Dave, ended up being reported in the UK tabloid newspaper called Today on the front page. This was confusing when we were looking. And I tried to look for these articles on newspapers.com and couldn't find them because the paper is called Today. Nothing <laughs> bothers me more then yeah. uh, somebody's got a something like that, a source, and it's named one of the most prevalent words in the world. It's like you can't search mm -hmm. for the word today on newspapers.com because guess what? That word's in every article. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So just so people understand, this tabloid yeah. is actually called Today. I don't know if it's still yes. around. Is it still around? Because when I looked for it, I couldn't find it. It's gone. Yes, it, it folded. I briefly read the wiki introduction yeah. on it and uh, a bit more tabloid. As we know, the Brit tabloids, boy, they really dive into it. Yeah. And they put their wellies on and get in the muck. Yeah. So yeah. in this case, though, they ran with this. And I think they were also trying to uh, spur up a lot of... Uh, excitement and sensationalism like they all do. And as we've talked about with the National Enquirer getting into the bet sphere and, and they want to publish it, but they kind of want to goose stuff and they want to own it and they want to manipulate it and they're on your side, but they're not really. It's just, yeah, it's very muddy waters yeah. here. And so once their story, though, their confession, you could say, ended up on the front page, from that moment on, perhaps most of the public and the press were satisfied that Doug and Dave were the answer to all the crop circles. But here's the thing. Doug and Dave backed down from their claim and modified it when presented with evidence that proved they had nothing to do with certain formations. For example, Doug and Dave had claimed to have made the Celtic cross formation that appears on the cover of Colin Andrews' book, Circular Evidence, which Scott pulled from uh, for a lot for part one. But when Andrews and Pat Delgado asked them to recreate it on a piece of paper, they were unable to, and they withdrew that claim. So it's accepted that Doug and Dave now, of course, had made some crop circles with one number claimed by them to be around 200 circles. So perhaps they made a lot of them and a lot of them were made by Doug and Dave, but it seems quite impossible that they made all the circles they claimed to. And I think we said this in part one and later they clearly stated that they didn't make any of the circles in Wiltshire, which is ground zero for the circles. And they said, yeah. oh, yeah, we didn't make any of those. Well, then you didn't make all of them because that's where most of them are happening. So yeah, that no, doesn't that's make sense. They, <laughs> and then the other the other part of this is it's like Pat Delgado tried to get them to recreate the Celtic cross and they couldn't do that on paper. Right. That refutes their claims just as much as having Pat or Colin be busted on national television about claiming that a hoax one was real. They're also claiming that some of the real ones that maybe are hoaxes. Yeah. It's like it's happening on both sides. It's just a question of how much press is it getting and which answer makes you feel more comfortable. Which one do you want to line up with as, as well, absolutely. You know, the skeptic or the believer or whatever? Yeah. So. There's a bit of hubris and a double standard and the hypocrisy I see here is that you have to look at whose attitude is backing what opinion. Because look at the case of Bigfoot, Patty, and Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin. They both claim, look, whatever we were tending to do out there in the woods, we got this on film. It's genuine. We saw this. And nobody uh, says uh, boo about what they got on film being fake film. 
that image is real. What they don't want to believe is that it's not a guy in a suit. Well, look at him. You know, he, this guy's a showman. He's a trickster. He was going to do a film about this. And so you look at the person and you discredit them. Here you have two guys that made a bunch of circles. If you don't believe in this stuff, you want to say, well, there you go. They probably made all of them, or if not all of them, most of them, or it's just people like them making these things. But then you have to look at their statements and that, yeah, they were maybe not intentionally lying, but they were untruthful, misremembered. They're not a trustworthy narrator of their own story. And you have to count that, don't you? Yeah. But maybe you don't if you don't believe in this. It's like, well, you know, they, look, they're two older guys. They forgot a bunch of the stuff. My point here is that it really depends on what you believe in and what's okay and what's not and what you leave out and what's yeah. lying by omission. Yeah, it all kind of irks me in a sense that you can take this and just kind of run with it. But that's why we're pointing out this story here. So continuing on with it, yeah, they probably made a bunch of circles. That's known. But I always say this. It's like you look at their circles, and a lot of them will have their DD signature that they've signed their circles. Uh, you'll see some photos yeah. that along a tram line, they'll they'll do a little half circles on there. So that's for Doug and Dave giving their signature on them. But you look at the end result, and they're pretty crude. Their patterns got better over the years, but in the documentary we're going to take a look at now, it's like they're also pointing them as like, look, look how fabulous they got. And and they were sending us uh, notes and drawings on and watercolors about the patterns they were going to do. Yeah, but look at the finished product. Does not compare to any of these fractal ones or the more complicated ones or the ones that are even just simple that have all these characteristics that certainly don't end up in Doug and Dave's circles. D- Hi, I'm Caro, and am I an avid podcast listener? Why, yes. Yes, I am. And have I listened to over 35,000 minutes of podcasts this year? Yes. Yes, I have. And were 17,000 minutes dedicated to Astonishing Legends? Absolutely. Obsessed? No, no. I am simply passionate. Thanks for listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. Well, where did their story begin? Well, according to uh, this article from the Smithsonian in 1976 is when they started making circles. Some sources say 1978. And this happened, of course, like many things do, after an evening of pints at their local pub in Winchester, Hampshire, (laughs) and being inspired by the January 19th, 1966 case in Australia of the Tully saucer nests. Boy, this sounds like we should cover this at one time, you know. That's a famous one. I, I can see that picture in my mind's eye when you think about it. It's, yeah. I, I know that. I'm very familiar with that story. On January 19th, 1966, a farmer from Tully, Queensland, reported seeing a large saucer-shaped object, as well as a so-called nest of reeds that uh, were twirled around underneath the ship. And I just took that from the wiki entry. Yeah, according to the uh, Smithsonian Magazine article, they were drinking one evening in 1976, and Bauer said to Chorley, Let's go over there and make it look like a flying saucer has landed. And the yeah. rest is history. Okay, scene. The series is over. <laughs> We're done. The... Mystery solved. But listen to the description here from Wiki about the uh, the saucer nest. So farmer said he witnessed a saucer-shaped craft rise 30 to 40 feet in the air, about 12 meters from a swamp, and then fly away. When he went up to investigate it, the circular area was about 32 feet long by 25 feet wide. And this mm-hmm. is where the grass had been flattened in clockwise curves to water level within the circle. That's interesting. And the reeds had been uprooted from the mud. So the local Royal Australian Air Force uh, officer 
a local police officer and uh, somebody uh, from the University of Queensland just said it's probably most likely natural causes, like a downdraft or a willy-willy, a dust devil that they call them there. So, But that, that goes into some of Terrence Meaden's thinking is that it's a plasma vortex of some kind causing these intricate patterns, or the weaving at least, but circular designs. So Bauer and Chorley said that's what gave them the idea. They kind of like the idea. It, it's like, let's have a little fun and, and mischief, especially uh, after a few uh, uh, pints of ale in you. So they set out about using a four-foot wooden plank that they had held down with rope on either side. And while you hold the ropes, uh, you're stepping down on the plank with your foot to crush and lay down the crops. And they, they demonstrate this on camera quite a bit. One of them, Doug Bauer perhaps, I think, uh, had fashioned a metal loop on a wire and affixed that to a baseball cap, which uh, says SWAT on it, <laughs> at least the, the one I uh, yes. I saw in the documentary, which is kind of yeah, cool. yeah. Yes. So his SWAT cap, he's got a little wire loop that hangs down. So basically it could be used like a sight, like an iron sight on a gun to make straight lines. So what you do is you peep sight some fixture in the landscape, say a building or something, and you keep that in the little circle as you look through it and you walk towards it. So that keeps you in line with at least that building. So uh, otherwise, then you got to get uh, ropes and lasers and GPS, which a lot of uh, scientists believe that's how crop circles are made by hoaxers. What's interesting about that is that that's technically a form of orienteering, which, yes, right. I was in the Boy Scouts. I yeah. am, in fact, an Eagle Scout. You were a Boy Scout. You're always an Eagle Scout. But, uh, wow. uh, you yeah. know. I actually did enjoy my scouting experience, but one merit badge I took was orienteering where you had to navigate mm -hmm. a course with a compass. That's all you had. And you had to figure out where you were going. And so yeah. this procedure that they're talking about to orient these circles, again, these guys who were described as painters, later one was described as an artist, but originally in everything, it said mm -hmm. they were painters. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. That is not necessarily sophisticated, but it's not a super well-known form of navigation. That thought to... Yeah use that methodology to line up your patterns does sound a little like something that might have been suggested to them by a military person. Just saying, not necessarily <laughs> Perhaps, organic yeah. to their backgrounds right. to come up with that to make their patterns line up the way they wanted them to. In right. a way, it's a sophisticated technique or it, it involves knowledge of stuff that you just don't, you don't generally come across unless you're an outdoorsy type, like survivalist or a, a, a frequent camper or whatever. And maybe they were, I don't know. I'm just saying. Right, That's just right. like a little observation on my part. And I'm sure that lots lots of angry emails will come about how one of them taught survival <laughs> courses. But that's just... I'll hide them from you. Yes. Please do. Yeah, don't tell me about them. Well, we didn't uh, drill down too much. I was going to actually assign this to Scott because uh, it got a little murky as far as... Uh, nailing down exactly when this happened, but I wondered when GPS was made available because, of course, it was a military technology at first. And I think it was uh, President Reagan's order initially that it should be made available to the public. So when were GPS devices available to people to, of course, that's what people are claiming is that, well, that's how they're using uh, this technology to make these complicated circles lasers and GPS, and it's like, okay, well, that would be a little early, I think, for GPS. And we're talking the mid-80s, the mid to late 80s. I'm not sure many of the public would have access to it. It no. may have been legal, but... I'm going to go with no, because like in the in the 90s, I got real into sailing when I lived in Los Angeles, and yeah, I used to yeah. charter. I, didn't, I couldn't afford a sailboat, but I could afford to be part of a club that let you charter them in Marina Del Rey. Right. And these were always somebody else's boat that I was deathly afraid of damaging or hurting. So I had, <laughs> I went out because I was, you know, renting these boats for day yeah. sail trips and stuff like that. 
I went out and bought a handheld Garmin GPS. And back mm-hmm. then, it was like mm-hmm. one of the first models on the market. And this was the early 90s, yeah. and it was incredibly expensive. Yes. Uh, so I can't imagine <laughs> I that, that yeah. anyone had anything like this prior to I wish I still had it. I don't know what I did with it. I think I feel like I sold yeah. it or something, but... Um, and uh-huh. worked pretty well. Saved my butt in the fog once, but like yeah. that was in the early '90s, and that was kind of the earliest you could get that stuff. We went to the Wikipedia page for Garmin, and it was saying that's right. about when you could expect it. Is like maybe '89. It was military first, then it was made for civilians, and then on top of that, it was like a thousand dollars. So that's my take on that. But so again, I end up with it's not impossible, but it seems unlikely. Or maybe yeah. there's a military reason behind this and they're using stuff that the the civilians can't use yeah that seems even more far-fetched why would you be messing around uh in the reeds with this kind of baloney so yeah yeah so the gps eh, it's pretty weak sauce in my opinion here but for the simple circles bauer and chorley said they were frustrated <laughs> that their circles weren't receiving any publicity so in 1981 early on here they claimed to create a circle at a natural amphitheater called Matterly Bowl, just outside Winchester, Hampshire, an area with roads around it and easily viewed by passing motorists. And so here's another bit of irony, because after newspapers claimed that the crop circles could easily have been formed by natural phenomena, the duo set out to make more complex patterns. Now, that's their story, but what I love here is that they're getting debunked. Right. <laughs> they're getting right. sidelines like, no, it's not even you guys. You're full of baloney. This is just natural stuff. Like, well, we'll show you that it's man-made. And then there's another level where it's like, it's not even man-made for, for some of these. Right. It's right. Uh, it's some outside force. Anyways, everybody's uh, zooming each other. Well, as I said, their circles have always looked pretty crude and wonky to me compared to the sophisticated ones. But I am impressed that they got out there and uh, were able to create basic circles. And we're able to fool some people in the short run. Well, here's the deal why the beans eventually spilled. Apparently, Doug Bauer's wife became suspicious after seeing lots of unexplained mileage on the car and fearing her accusing him of having an affair, he had to come clean to his wife about their pranks. And then the two of them took their story to Today, the British tabloid newspaper. Today. Today. Not today. Not the day we're recording they this, took Scott. It today? The, the oh, name okay. of the... Yes. No. The name of the... Yes. I should have named the uh, the newspaper in my pocket. Like, what? Did you take yeah. it to your, your, your pocket? Like, no. Where'd you take it? Who's on first? Yeah. That is it. That's how the cat got out of the bag in the wheat field. So Scott and I are always throwing each other articles and links all the time. And there's one story that I, I can't exactly remember where we saw it first, but I kind of like this, uh, this angle on here. It's one seriologist, maybe George Wingfield who made a comment about Doug's wife should have knowing about this. Yeah, yeah. This is in issue five of the Seriologist magazine. Oh, we have a link to this okay. if you want to read it. Uh, this is from xcon, E-X-E-C-O-N-N.com, which is a broken website, but this link still works. And it says, uh, in issue five of the Seriologist magazine, George Wingfield wrote an article about the hoax in which he commented about Miss Bauer saying, quote, she must be the doziest person in the world if it took six <laughs> years to notice his nightly absences, end quote. The large number of circles claimed by them would indicate that they would have to be working at least several nights a week on them, so George's viewpoint is not hard to understand. Doug's wife responded with a letter to the editor in the following issue in which she demanded an apology with the explanation that they were gone usually on Friday nights, not weekly. So in her anger, this is a fascinating bit of information that she's coming back with. It's one night a week, and it's only Fridays, and yes, there's been analysis, and we have a link to it. I don't think we need to talk about it in the show, but we have an analysis just about what days they appeared and Mm -hmm. how prevalent were they on Fridays, because guess what? They weren't all on Fridays. 
So no, there's no, something no. not making sense here <laughs> or, as well. Well, the Doug and Dave laid claim to a crop circle recently at that time that was proven to appear on a Tuesday night. And then right. the number of circles overall that they claim to have made would have taken significantly more than one night a week for years to have made all the ones that they end up claiming. So, yeah, that doesn't Yeah, was, fit. they're making like 200, and then by the, I mean, depending on what year you look at it, at least that many are appearing, 200, 300, in some years, yeah. 500. Of course, I think by then they were right. theoretically out of the game, but still, it's... Yeah, it's, I think they said, uh, what was it, the, the one survivor of uh, uh, the two... Continued making them until 2004, perhaps. But yeah, uh, again, yeah. it's uh, kind of a hobby. And we'll we'll see why perhaps this is happening. But I think they did make a bunch, a handful. It was kind of a fun thing. You'll hear from them directly about why they did it. And uh, obviously, they're gone some nights a week. So for their boys' night out on Friday nights or whenever, they were out doing something after a few pints. And that's right. what she noticed. But certainly not all the ones that they claim to. So... It's the greatest cover-up of an affair of all time. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of effort, but yeah, uh, there yeah. you go. You can't have to you I can't was argue not with fooling it. around. Here's the proof. Look in these fields. <laughs> That's where I was. Right. So as we've touched on a little bit before, the story continues. And at one point in early September of 1991, Doug and Dave created one of their man-made crop circles and noted experts, Colin Andrews and his fellow researcher, Pat Delgado, they were brought to render an opinion on this Doug and Dave circle. Well, Pat Delgado was quoted in an associated news story that was picked up worldwide as saying, quote, straight away, you can see everything you would expect to see in a hoax. The plants are broken. It is extremely ragged and obviously a hoax. There is nothing to impress us here except two very fit 60-year-olds, end quote. Suffice it to say that in this particular incident, Mr. Andrews and Mr. Delgado determined that there was really no comparison between what they were at the time identifying as real crop circles and the somewhat clumsy, unrefined mess that Doug and Dave had made. So again, this was September of 1991. And then here's the other bombshell. There's a suspicion by many crop circle investigators that Doug and Dave may have been part of a disinformation campaign, using them to seed the idea to the general public that all circles were made by hoaxers. Well, next, there's a little bit of a story about how Pat Delgado got tricked by a Doug and Dave formation. You have some more information on that, right, Scott? Yes, I do. And so in the context of the big picture and the timeline, you think about what uh, Colin Andrews went through at Operation Blackbird. That was just about a year prior to this. So that was meant to embarrass Colin there, and, and that worked. Now it seems like they're coming for Pat Delgado here. And I want to read an excerpt from this article. I don't know the original byline because it was picked up over the wire, and this is a, uh, from the Asbury Park Press in uh, New Jersey, but this is September 10th, uh, 1991. And I'm just going to read a section from it. The first part of it is all stuff that you've heard from us uh, here in our own series. The latest news on the circle front, that the whole thing apparently was a joke, came to Delgado last week in the cruelest possible way. With a newspaper reporter and a photographer watching, Bauer and Chorley made one of their circles in a cornfield. Then the circle was shown to Delgado, who solemnly pronounced it genuine and explained that no mere mortals could have made such a thing. The newspaper, today, again, that's the name of the paper, brought Delgado to view the circles, and according to the paper, he said of the designs, quote, no human being could have done this. These crops are laid down in these sensational patterns by an energy that remains unexplained and is of a high level of intelligence, end quote. 
Then he was informed that two mere mortals had made it. This article is very cheeky. The paper then introduced the men to Delgado, who admitted, quote, we have been conned. This is a dirty trick. Thousands of lives are going to be wrecked over this, end quote. By yesterday, with his circle empire under siege, he tried to mount a recovery when Bauer and Chorley made yet another circle, this one for British television. I'm not sure how far apart these two dates are. But Delgado mm-hmm. gave it a firm thumbs down. Quote, this is not a genuine crop circle. It's totally different from the real thing, he said firmly as he examined the work. This is a hoax, and it's easy for us to see that it's a hoax. And then this goes on, and it's all stuff that we've covered and or are covering. But that's a scenario that wound up embarrassing Delgado in an unfortunate and kind of cruel way. You know, we don't have a lot of insight into why he made that proclamation. And I don't even know if that's important at this point, but it is important. It is part of the history of crop circles and and what it was like for these researchers. But for us, in much the same way we lambast the phrase mystery solved, this is mystery solved. And it's also an assailing of the characters of these two guys, because now you're taking this guy and he's, you're making fun of his proclamation about these ones that Doug and Dave made. This is the same guy that a year or two earlier was seized and thrust backwards in a field on some sort of invisible beam. So if right. you believe any of this at all, as we used to say. So right. my question to you is, how how do you think that guy reconciles the experiences that he had researching the circles with then being tricked into declaring a fake one the real thing? It doesn't change what's yeah. happened to him up until that point. Uh, all it yeah. does is minimize his research and his opinion when it, it doesn't necessarily mean this one event doesn't mean that everything he's ever done is aligned with that. It's, it doesn't mean that everything he's ever said is a hoax. What it does mean, though, what I will say and what is clear on this journey through crop circles is that human beings absolutely can make these and they can make really elaborate ones. And researchers, I believe, can be tricked. Do I think that means that they're all hoaxes? Absolutely not. And that's what we're trying to get to the root of as we as we go through this series. And that's part of the quote from Pat Delgado himself, as you can see in the documentary, I transcribed it here. And uh, this is after uh, he looked at it. He says, I classed it as I would lean towards saying it was genuine. And I feel that it's on the cards, that it is genuine. But that doesn't mean to say that every other one is a hoax. I'm only talking about that one. I consider all the others are genuine that we've said are genuine. And so it seems a little out of context to me. I had to kind of ruminate about this statement. But the tone of it is that, well, if you're asking me right now, I feel, yeah, it's genuine. But he also knows that, he, you know, it's not so declarative, I guess is what I'm saying, is that I can tell right away that it's got magical properties, this and that. He just feels from what he looked at right there that, uh, yeah, it ticks off all the boxes for me of being genuine, but it's not a full and thorough examination and investigation of the circle. And he's saying that uh, it doesn't affect all the other judgments that they've made on circles. So, but then here's the deal. Turn the yellow camera back around. Oh, speaking of which, there's something that was interesting. I, I encourage you, if you're interested in the White Crow incident, there's a fuller accounting of it from Colin's website where Pat Delgado, this, again, pretty level-headed NASA uh, technician guy, his eyes were closed and his hands started shaking violently in conjunction with the woman who was the medium there. Uh, She was with her husband and he was holding her. She was almost kind of passed out, but just her hands started shaking. His did. uh, Both of their eyes were closed. 
it was a freaky moment. And also they received some freaky letters, which we did not read, but go check those out if you like that kind of mystery. Uh, so there's a lot of weird stuff that abounded uh, in a almost, uh, I wouldn't say Indrid cold men in black kind of way, but they were messed with in some way before, during, and after perhaps. Uh, but back to the bombshell of sorts that we left to the end of part one. There is a suspicion by many crop circle investigators that Doug and Dave may have been part of a disinformation campaign, using them to seed the idea to the general public that all circles were made by hoaxers and perhaps sponsored by a governmental or military agency. Well, Dave Chorley died of cancer in 1996, and Doug Bauer, born 25th of June 1924, died July 21st, 2018, at the age of 94. The pair had claimed to make all the crop circles found prior to 1987 and claimed responsibility for more than 200 circles from 1978 to 1991, with around 1,000 crop circles not claimed by them and their efforts. And Dave Chorley's passing in 1996, Doug Bauer claimed to have kept making crop circles at least until 2004. So Right. And so calling back to how we ended part one, talking about a strange connection between them and possibly the Ministry of Defense, I want to read this from a website called ravenecho.com. We have a link to this. Quote, a newspaper article credited the Doug and Dave story to MBF services. After much reluctance from the newspaper staff, it was explained that a freelance press agency had passed on the story to the newspaper. When asked for the phone number of MBF, the phone was hung up. Investigations eventually led to a research and development lab in Somerset where work is conducted on classified government defense projects. Just before the Doug and Dave incident, a French government scientist had warned researchers not to risk their reputations on the crop circles, for shortly the British government would engage two artists and would present them to the press as the crop circle creators to, quote, put an end to all the wearisome fuss, end quote. Aha! Aha! Well, it's kind of sketchy. There's not a lot of sources and corroboration. And no, I mean, you can just but, write this paragraph uh, and say this is what's happening, and we'll yeah. be the first to admit that. But that has come up in a couple of places. Ironically, on the flip side, you could write an article saying, like, I did all of it. And people were like, there you go. It's done. Yeah, he did. They, they did. So it. They did it. And so as we've been saying the theme here, it's very easy to just say you did something. And then uh, people are, uh, yeah, it's, it's the easier thing to believe. They just did it. So we're fine with that. Let's take a look at... Uh, hoaxers and the hoaxing mindset in general, because I, I also find this fascinating. And and was it way back with Kincaid's cave? I think somebody was upset. It basically gave us the hell year, like one star, no goblins. Right. Review. And like, <laughs> you didn't find any massive treasure there, dudes. It's like, well, look, we got to the bottom of it as far as we think we are able to. And that's what we want to know. What's going on with this stuff? So this is from Colin Andrews' summation uh, from his book, crop circles, signs of contacts, about his definition of hoaxers. One or more people who enter farmers' fields and create crop patterns. Hoaxers produce their designs for one of two reasons, to deliberately deceive or to create, quote-unquote, earth art. Hoaxers do not usually admit their work, no matter what their real purpose. Some earth artists take credit for a creation, but most do not. Hoaxers, also known as counterfeiters, use boards and rollers to flatten crops, and many plot out their designs on computers first. Hoaxers sometimes get permission from farmers and pay them a stipend. 
many times they do not. Many serious seriologists are in agreement that hoaxers have, quote unquote again, muddied the waters of crop circle research and have skewed the perception of the phenomenon in the eyes of the general public, leading many to believe that all crop circles are man-made. So what does the, you could say the general body of the scientific mind think about this kind of stuff? Well, I think with things like this, they take a step back. You know what I'm saying? They're not going to get in the weeds and start arguing uh, swamp gas versus sandhill cranes versus uh, giant orbs and fields. They're going to look at the larger scientific and sociological reasonings for this kind of stuff. So that's why I wanted to read a large chunk of this article here in that I think it's an interesting look at the mindset and the, you could say, folkloric connections of why we do this stuff. And it's pretty well laid out. So it's pretty debunky, but uh, this is a smithsonianmag.com article by Rob Irving and Peter Brooksmith, published on December 15th, 2009, titled Crop Circles, The Art of the Hoax. Subtitled, they may not be evidence of UFOs, ancient spirits, or secret weapons, but there is something magical in their allure. So as it's implied, uh, their position on all circles these are being man-made, and uh, Doug Bauer and Dave Chorley started it all for the modern era, at least, but it makes some good points about earnest and sincere motivations behind providing hoaxed evidence as genuine proof of the paranormal in general, and what role belief plays in all of it, and why. So the article starts off by saying, almost as soon as crop circles became public knowledge, they attracted a gaggle of self-appointed experts an efflorescence of mystical and magical thinking, scientific and pseudo-scientific research, conspiracy theories, and general pandemonium broke out. The patterns stamped in fields were treated as a lens through which the initiated could witness the activity of earth energies and ancient spirits, the anguish of Mother Earth in the face of impending ecological doom, and evidence of secret weapons testing, and of course, aliens. <laughs> Today, one of the more vigorously promoted ideas is that they are messages buried in complex numerological codes concerning a great change connected to the pre-Columbian Mayan calendar and due to occur in 2012. So quick side note here, of course, that did not happen as far as we know, but I found this also ironic in that, well, isn't that what science is banging on the drum now, that uh, Mother Earth is facing impending ecological doom? So what position is silly now? We didn't think so much about this, perhaps, back in the 80s and 90s, but now it's a serious concern. So in any case, it's just funny to read the tones here as the article starts off. So continuing on with the article, it says, A crucial clue to the circle's allure lies in their geographical context. Wiltshire is the home of Stonehenge and an even more extensive stone circle in the village of Avebury. The rolling downs are dotted with burial mounds and solitary standing stones, which many believe to be connected by an extensive network of lays, or paths of energy linking these enchanted sites with others around the country. It is said that this vast network is overlaid in the form of sacred geometries. The region has also given rise to a rich folklore of spectral black dogs, headless coachmen, and haunted houses. All of which is poppycock! Now, that's the, the article doesn't say that. I, I just, that's what I hear in my head when I see it written like that. So continuing on, crop circles are a lens through which we can explore the nature and appeal of hoaxes. Okay, I'll, I'll buy that. 
Fakes, counterfeits, and forgeries are all around us in the everyday world, from dud $50 bills to spurious Picassos. People's motives for taking the unreal as real are easily discerned. We trust our currency, and many people would like to own a Picasso. The nebulous world of the anomalous and the paranormal is even richer soil for hoaxers. A large proportion of the population believes in ghosts, angels, UFOs, and ET visitations, fairies, psychokinesis, and other strange phenomena. These beliefs elude scientific examination and proof. And it's just such proof that the hoaxer brings to the table for those hungry for evidence that their beliefs are not deluded. False evidence intended to corroborate an existing legend is known to folklorists as ostension. This process also inevitably extends the legend. For even if the evidence is eventually exposed as false, it will have affected people's perceptions of the phenomenon it was intended to represent. Faked photographs of UFOs, Loch Ness monsters, and ghosts generally fall under the heading of ostention. Another example is the series of photographs of fairies taken by Elsie Wright and Francis Griffiths at Cottingley, Yorkshire, between 1917 and 1920. These show that the motive for producing such evidence may come from belief, rather than from any wish to mislead or play pranks. One of the girls insisted till her dying day that she really had seen fairies. The manufactured pictures were a memento of her real experience, and the photos were taken as genuine by such luminaries as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the great exponent in his Sherlock Holmes stories of logic. So the desire to promote evidence of anomalous and paranormal events as genuine springs from deep human longings. One is a gesture towards rationalism, the notion that nothing is quite real unless it's endorsed by reasoned argument and underwritten by more or less scientific proofs. But the human soul longs for enchantment. Those who don't find their instinctive sense of the numinous satisfied by art, literature, or music, let alone the discoveries of science itself, may well turn to the paranormal to gratify an intuition that mystery dwells at the heart of existence. Some people are perfectly placed to accept hoaxed evidence of unexplained powers and entities as real. And so, the annual appearance of ever more complex patterns in the wheat fields of southern England is taken by crappies, quote-unquote, uh, the devotees who look beyond any prosaic solution for deeper explanations, as signs and wonders and prophecies. The crappies do, however, accept that some people, some of the time, are making some of the formations, and they regard these human circle makers as a nuisance, contaminators of the evidence, and denounce them as hoaxers. The term is well chosen, for it implies social deviance, and therein lies the twist in the story. In crappie culture, common parlance is turned on its head, the word genuine usually implies that something has a single identifiable origin of established provenance. To the crappie, it means the opposite. A genuine circle is of unknown provenance, or not man-made, a mystery, in other words. It follows that the man-made circle is a hoax. So think about that. That's interesting. Yeah. That, that concept is flipped around, right? Yeah. Those circle makers who are prepared to comment on the semantic reversal do so with some amusement. As far as they're concerned, they are creating art in the fields. In keeping with New Age thought, 
It is by dissociating with scientific tradition that the circle makers return art to a more unified function, where images and objects are imbued with special powers. This art is intended to be provocative, collective, and ritual enterprise, and as such, it is often inherently ambiguous and open to interpretation. To the circle maker, the greater the range of interpretations inspired in the audience, the better. Both makers and interpreters have an interest in the circles being perceived as magical, and this entails their tacit agreement to avoid questions of authorship. This is essentially why croppies regard man-made circles as a distraction, a contamination. Paradoxically, and unlike almost all other modern forms of art, a crop circle's potential to enchant is animated and energized by the anonymity of its authors. Doug Bauer now tells friends that he wishes that he had kept quiet and continued his nocturnal jaunts in secret. Both circle makers and croppies are really engaged in a kind of game whose whole purpose is to keep the game going, to prolong the mystery. After all, who would travel thousands of miles and trek through a muddy field to see flattened wheat if it were not imbued with otherworldly mystique? As things stand, the relationship between the circle makers and those who interpret their work has become a curious symbiosis of art and artifice, deception and belief, all of which raises the question, who's hoaxing whom? Who's zooming who indeed, Scott? Well, an interesting question here, but that's what I love about this last line here from the, the summary or the summarizing ending paragraphs of the story is that yeah, there seems to be this curious, strange, that's mysterious, symbiotic relationship between circle makers and those who interpret their work, the seriologists. And of course, it's art and artifice, deception and belief. That's a Smithsonian viewpoint. But as we know, come on, Smithsonian, you know it goes a lot deeper and more mysterious than that and delves into the muck of the paranormal. Yeah, Smithsonian, what about your secret archives? <laughs> no, that was the barge of stuff that they went out and burned and sank it. Remember, yeah, it was exactly. just a bunch of uh, giants. And I love that idea. You'd see it on The Simpsons. It's like, you know, the skeletons of angels and uh, yeah, <laughs> a few of the crates from the warehouse in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, look, what's below this is, and where I find it deliciously ironic and hypocritical, is you look to the hoaxers and if you're a rational person who doesn't believe any of this, it's like some friends of ours, and you say, this is all baloney, it's bunkum, it's humbug, because look at the hoaxers. They're telling you they did this. They have proof. Well, do they have proof? I asked Scott this early on. I'm willing to go along with this if you show me a video of you doing the whole thing of a really complicated one. Now, there are levels of complexity and intricacy with these circles. And again, that's why we implore you to go watch some of these documentaries. It's just, it's, if it's just land art, it's mind blowing. If it's from somewhere else, it's almost less mind blowing because it's from a higher intelligence or another separate uh, existential intelligence. But uh, I guess I would expect them to be a lot better at this stuff than we would, but it's quite an accomplishment either way. So go take a look at these. And so you, I just want to see video of people doing this in the middle of the night. Certainly we have equipment that can show it and time lapse. And there are videos of this happening. Now, do they level up to what are seen like at Milk Hill with 404 circles? I don't know. You have to be the judge in that. 
But this is my point. If you're going to take the rational, prosaic approach and say it's all just hoaxers, well, then let's accept what they have to say about the process. Because the fun thing I love about this is that even they are having strange experiences. And so they're just as much a part of this sticky wicket of the paranormal as anyone else who's stepped their toe into the ring. Wait, they stubbed their toe or they stepped their toe? I think you steeped. Steeped? Uh, they they're steeping their toes? Plated. Plated. I'll say plated. Plated. They're woven their toes yes. into the reedy firmament of the of the corn, <laughs> which is uh, what they call everything. It's like, it's, just, it's all corn to them, as we said. Uh, uh, but they're not really growing much corn. That's more of an Atchison, the stomping ground you love so much. Yes. And the freaky tall corn and what's hiding in there. But I'm sure there have been actual circles made in stalks of corn, which would be really impressive if those were woven because they're so thick and tall. So, dear listeners, I had tasked Scott with finding that evidence online, anywhere, anything. Just show me some video of a group of people making some more complicated circles in the middle of the night. Or it could be in the day. I didn't care. I just want to see this because it's so easy to say you did this. And not really have to back it up with anything. And people just believe you. So I said, Scott, just find any evidence we can talk about. And he did. A couple of these videos that you found, Scott, I watched bits of them. We we were actually recording yesterday. We find a lot of good stuff right as we sit down to record. So we're quickly scrolling through these things. And uh, it was interesting. They show the patterns on a computer and a monitor that they intended to make. And then they show you some video of them actually doing it in the middle of the night. But that's not the interesting part to me. It's the guest that they had who's on there talking about it and all the weird experiences he had and his mates have had while out in the field making these things. And one of them, uh, it was just this wild story. And again, if he's a hoaxer, he's got to be the level-headed side of this argument, right? He's the one out there actually creating these things. I think he was with three other team members from Circle Makers, and they bumped into these other folks that, uh, and you can call them New Age or whatever, but you can make arrangements to sleep in a crop circle with the farmer overnight. And I think that's what these people had done. Now, he says that they, they chatted with him, they got to know them, they, I guess they seem pretty nice and normal. And these people, about I don't know, maybe 15, 20 people, has said, yeah, we just saw a group of black triangles fly over the, the cops of trees <laughs> to the edge of the fields. And he says, well, keep in mind, I didn't see these things, but these people were adamant. They just saw them. And he said, like, it was a weird night. He said, me and my friends, we felt weird. Not in a bad way, just like we're compelled to do this. And uh, Scott, what was another uh, anecdote that he had that was pretty freaky and makes you pay attention? Yeah, so there's a couple things about this. One is, just to reframe this, originally these group of hoaxers called themselves Team Satan. Eventually they changed their name to the Circle Makers, probably because Team Satan's the dumbest name of all time, but it could also be (laughs) because all the researchers were referring to the unknown source Mm -hmm. of crop circles as circle makers. So in doing this, they're playing that game of cat and mouse or with, again, this is what I wanted to call this series, crop circle war. Yeah. Um, It's cat and cat (laughs) or mouse and mouse. I'm not sure what's happening here. It's late. But my point is the circle makers have a website called circlemakers.org. And the website is got some information up there, but it hasn't been updated in quite some time. But then when Forrest said to me, look, you got to find these videos 
is there anything out there? And initially I was like, no, I can't find anything. I don't, can't find, where is the video of people making the crop circles, the really complicated ones? Mm-hmm. And I'm glad I kept looking because eventually I did find one. And it's a late night time lapse, which they run back several times. They make a pretty complicated one. This comes from a website called circlemakerstv.org, which is different from circlemakers.org. And I couldn't get from one to the other. Maybe there's links there, but the navigation is not great between these websites. Um, So when I got to circlemakerstv.org, that's on YouTube, but that's also not the name of the YouTube channel. The YouTube guy that posted this stuff, his handle is truthseeker666. So this stuff is still kind of hard to find. It's hard to drill down and get back to all this stuff. So truthseeker666 posted these videos from circlemakerstv.org, which you can't really get to from circlemakers.org, or maybe you can, the links are buried. All the navigation is, is complex and hard to follow. However, once you find these videos, it's pretty fascinating, and we have links to them. There's a lot of information, and they're they're interviewing each other. There's a, a, a gentleman playing the host, and we'll talk a little bit more specifically mm-hmm. about this in part three, but he's playing the host, and he's interviewing one of the guys who was present. Uh, they were together in making several circles, and they're talking a little bit about how they came up with ideas for designs and different ones they made, including uh, one called The Queen which the gentleman then shows that he has tattooed on his calf, that one that he made. And I think they call him uh, Agent D or something like that. But they also refer to him right by his <laughs> name. The, yeah. the production's a little all over the place. And I feel for them because technically this stuff can be tricky, especially back then. Oh, yeah. The audio's in and out. The mics are too hot. The, uh, there's bad keys and all that stuff. But the point is they're in there and they're talking about making these and how they can make complex circles. But it's different than you expect because they also talk about unusual events taking place while they're hoaxing the circles. And this is where we're headed in part three. Oh my goodness. Are you Jose chugging this one? I am Jose chugging from outer space. This is what's <laughs> happening here. And this is one of the best stories uh, about it. And, and we have a link to this segment where they are detailing one of the circles that they were constructing. And it was under clear view of a group of people surveying the field to see if any circles would appear that night, and also probably looking out for hoaxers. So the lead gentleman says, uh, you know what, I'm going to go over there and do some recon. He puts a, he says he puts a coat on and pops his collar up or whatever. He wanders out of the field up to where all the people are watching. And he's like, so you guys are looking down. You got a watchtower, huh? Looking at sky watching tonight? And they're like, yep, that's what <laughs> we're doing. Because they had a big tower probably yeah. looking for UFOs. They're also looking right down at the field. And while he's up there, he can see the field that they were planning to put a design in, a formation. And he said, there's just no way I should have done it. But for some reason, even as I was standing up there looking down into the field, I felt compelled for us to put a formation in there that night, even though it would clearly be in plain sight of all these folks who are staking it out. Mm-hmm. And he goes, it was bad judgment. I don't know why I did that. So he, But he leaves the group. He goes back down and he said, we've got to go. Let's go. Let's do it. So they then go out into the field right in front of all these people watching, and they start work creating a hoax pattern in the crops. Now, I use the term hoax here, but when you hear these circumstances, you'll understand why that's not definitive. And and keep in mind, this story is straight from the circle makers themselves, not from crop circle enthusiasts or researchers. But the moment they went out into that field to start creating this man-made formation, and what they understood to be in plain view of the folks observing the area, a bank of fog moved in, obscuring their presence from those observers at the edge of the field. 
What's possibly paranormal about this is that the circle makers never saw any fog that night. As far as they could tell, they created that particular design, which they felt compelled to do, out in the open, right in front of those folks. But that fog moved in at just the right time and stayed present for however many hours it took for that formation to be created, obscuring the circle makers from the observers. Fog that the circle makers insist, from their vantage point, was never there. That's going to wrap up tonight's show. A very special thanks to Colin Andrews and our friend Gletters. We'll be back in two weeks with part three, where we'll be talking about sacred geometry, mystical connections, and our final conclusions on crop circles. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hey, Scott and Forrest. Hi, I'm Julie Fisk. Hi, I'm Colin Andrews, and I give permission to Astonishing Legends. And now for the spelling of my incredibly long and complicated name. C-O-L-I-N. Aww. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>